This episode is brought to you by Mothers. Mothers are the innovative and blessed service providers you've always used to bring you life and to nurture you from their bodies when you were unable to even lift yourself from your bed. But four out of five Freudian psychoanalysts say they've also outfitted you for life with the roots of all your neuroses and hysterias and repressed sexual attractions. And five out of five spouses enthusiastically affirm, boy, your mother really screwed you up. And the best thing about them, they're trouble free. Mothers want you to know you don't need to call or visit. Why should you? Just because they spent 36 hours in agonizing labor bringing you into the world? Just because they gave up their own dreams to care for you and still spend every minute thinking of you? No, it's a mother's duty to give for their children. They don't want you to do anything for them out of guilt. Don't feel guilty or ungrateful or guilty. Here, sit down. They'll make you a sandwich. And thank you, mothers, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. This episode is brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And thank you, listener patrons, for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Hello? Hello? Is anyone out there? Who is there? <laughs> yes. It hasn't been that long. It's not like, not like they don't remember us at all. We, we even had a Christmas special. <laughs> oh, I remember that voice from so long ago. I, where <laughs> could it be? <laughs> uh, we are back. We yes, are back yes. Indeed. Getting back on the saddle. So yep. We should just jump right back into it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. They've we're, waited we're almost done. In fact, we were just talking. We're, we're so close to being done. So, so, so close. But so much, actually. Yep. I mean, I was looking at the episodes. There are some episodes in there that I have struggled over. Um, well, it's not like the Stone Town is the most straightforward part of the series. Really. <laughs> yeah, there is so. Yeah, man, it is. I I don't know. That might be a two parter. The last chapter. It could be. Yeah. You know? All right. Let's let's go ahead and move back to the last episode uh, toward Thrax. Right. So long ago now, we were considering the birds that Severian describes <laughs> in Toward Thax. Uh, Christopher Taylor uh, thinks that the birds with the three forked tails are fishing bats. He says the three forks are the tail and feet connected by the Europatagium, and Severian's description of them skimming over the surface of the water tallies with the actual behavior. And he says, I don't know if they audibly Twitter or not, but I, I think they're mentioned here to further muddy the waters about the nature of Jalinta's injuries later. Interesting. So, Craig, what has two humps, lives in the desert, and sings like a canary? <laughs> Apparently not a camel named Tweety Bird. <laughs> it's a camel. I just put in the, oh. <laughs> the last part to make it harder. So. <laughs> Regarding this, um, bat biologist Jeremy Sheets... thought that that was a very interesting observation. 
However, he thinks it's unlikely that fishing bats would make an audible noise, but you know, who knows in the future. And he clarifies that our, our fishing bats use echolocation to detect small movements in the water, and then they use their huge feet to grab minnows out of the water. Uh, and he says to look up bulldog bats, same species. And clarifying more, he says, uh, there is a scissor-tailed nightjar that has three tails, but it doesn't fish. And the bulldog bat does fish, but it barely has a tail. He reiterated on Facebook that he thinks that for that reason, that the bulldog bat could not be a valid candidate because it just doesn't have much of a tail. Hmm. Uh, he does have a lot of candidates, however. <laughs> he says, uh, I did a quick search of birds of Uruguay. You've seen the assumption that the guile is located in Uruguay. Although most of the southern South America likely shares many species of birds. And note, one bat is included in this post that he uh, gave. So number one, he says owls that Severian mentioned. So this one is obvious. Then two, birds with round heads, short, broad, silent wings. He says that seems like owls, but it could be patus. Uh, he, he included a picture. Uh, they're crazy looking birds that sit still during the day. And there are a lot of memes of this bird. Yeah, I, I knew this bird immediately. It, they have these big mouths and the big, huge beaks. They just look weird. They sit on these the top of these stumps and make themselves look like uh, the top of a broken tree or something like that. Oh. Yeah, cool. Uh, he also, three, he says, birds of other kinds with two forked and three forked tails. He thinks likely these are night jars, many of which have forked tails and the scissor-tailed nightjar has three tails, as he said. And these birds are known to drink on the wing, but he says, I'm not sure about the Twitter sound that Wolf describes, but they will uh, make a tweet-like noise. And most nightjars in the eastern United States, uh, whooperwill and the southern species of the chuckwill widows, uh, basically call out their names. He says that I was not wrong in guessing nighthawks, which are a similar type of nightjar, and they do occur in Uruguay. The fork-tailed birds uh, wouldn't be scissor-tail flycatchers because that only occurs in the southern plains of Texas with a subspecies south to Panama that are diurnal. That means that they're only active during the day, not at night. There is a fork-tailed flycatcher in Uruguay, but it is also uh, diurnal. So all of this depends on the idea that Wolf was actually looking at real birds and not just making them up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Appropriate geographical areas as well that he had his little handbook of South American birds. I, I fully believe and that. that it was accurate. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, why didn't he use some, some extinct species of birds anyway? So good point, but still fun, fun to track down. Yeah. Especially cause it actually lets us picture some things, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I, I mean, those patus would definitely belong in Severian's world. Uh, so Scout Savar on Facebook wants to talk about uh, Wolf's quote about Severian subconsciously seeking his mother. He says, that's a big example of why I have always perceived a barrier between me and these books. I always feel like I'm visiting an author of a different culture that I can't fully interpret myself because we have different pools of reference. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> he says that kind of literally Freudian psychoanalytic structure to a person's desires and motivations is just not how I understand people to be structured. And it doesn't seem plausible or make innate sense to me, even if I can follow the chain of logic once it's laid out. I would never 
in a million years make that connection. And if anyone other than Wolf stated it, I wouldn't find it compelling. There's an endless supply of similar things that we just don't have convenient Wolf quotes on that similarly feel like they just missed the mark for me, due to not at least the fact that I grew up in an atheist family and have a very scant and hazy understanding of regular Christianity. Well, let me tell you something. So the thing is, I was, I was raised as a Christian, and I can tell you that Wolf's particular perspectives on Christianity sometimes throw me. They very often throw me. Sometimes he'll have things laid out, and I think I understand what he's saying, and I think it sounds really heretical. So <laughs> it's, it always kind of surprises me. So it, you're not alone. It really doesn't have a whole lot to do with anything like that. Yeah. He says, let alone Wolf's esoteric Catholicism with even less personal resonance in its themes. It's frustrating being able to distantly understand an object that is intricately patterned, but have so much of it seem arbitrary because it's built on things I don't have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's a sense in which that's intentional too, right? Because he's trying in some of this to actually create a world that shares a version of things that we find familiar, but then it's also supposed to be unfamiliar. So I don't, I don't think Scout's actually missing anything. I actually think that's kind of, it's kind of the point reacting appropriately. (laughs) And yeah. And what I don't like is when people are like, take the sort of opposite route and are like, Oh no, I'm Catholic. So I know what he's doing. I know exactly what, yeah, I know precisely all he's doing is just recreating Catholicism and just decided to make it seem weird, but it's not, it is pure this. And, you know, and there's loads of people who have that sometimes for contradictory ways of looking at it. And so, but as far as the Freudian thing, one tricky thing that I've gotten out of teaching is that loads of people will like to say, oh, but you know, people, there's so much like Freudian criticism. Why is that there when, you know, Freud's been disproven or it's just one way of looking at things. The difficulty with that is that what Freud is good at doing is creating a kind of narrative that's easy to capture your imagination. And Mm -hmm. it's the kind of thing that artists in particular subconsciously sometimes, but also definitely consciously will also latch onto those kinds of stories, which become, I mean, what is it, if nothing else, than a sort of narrative of character motivation, right? Yeah. And so it becomes an easy way for so many artists, whether or not I think at this point they intend to do it, is that it becomes, it is part of the, the sort of literary and artistic and symbolic tradition, whether or not it's actually true is almost irrelevant because it's absolutely true as part of the literary tradition in the West at this point with so much of modern stuff. So, you know, not, he doesn't even have to be consciously deciding I'm going to be Freudian in order to be copying and living out trends of how characters have been motivated forever, you know, in in lots of different stuff, especially 20th century things. So yeah, personally, I don't think Freud was right about, you know, it's never that simple, but Mm -hmm. it, does work really well symbolically as these really sort of powerful ways to think about mother imagery and mother symbolism, whether or not it would be the only story in there. I think it's absolutely available as a kind of symbolic structure that's going to show up whenever you start to verge into these sort of archetypal images. Especially for someone like Severian. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I think so. Who is implausibly, in my opinion, running into his mother all the time. Right. 
Right. And so, and, and also in the case where Wolf always has these odd sort of asides about his mother as, you know, a giant face in front of him was his mm-hmm. first memory and, and things like that. He himself, and again, whether or not it is truly Freudian in a sort of scientific sense, I get the sense that Wolf interprets himself with a heavy dose of sort of Freudian structure to it, even if he wouldn't straight out always call it that way. Yeah, maybe if he's just because he's he, maybe if he doesn't feel like he's sexually attracted to his mother. Right. He, right. he thinks the structure perhaps resonates with him. Right. He talks his his mother apparently had a huge influence on his yeah. life as a reader and as a literary person. Yeah. So I totally sympathize with Scout when they say that it's not something that seems intuitively necessarily right about so much of the world. But I, in Wolf's case, I think I can see why it might be appropriate. And at least at the very least appropriate to follow the logic. And also something else that resonates with me from Scout's post is that there's so many things that Wolf seems to expect us to just, oh, OK, I pick. OK, I see that. Mm-hmm. I see that. I see that. And. No, no one's going to pick up on that. Uh, right. The example I gave was when is uh, his essay in Castle of the Otter, where he says, and of course, astute readers will have recognized that the fourth right. book that Severian brings to Thecla is the book of the new sun. <laughs> I don't right. really. <laughs> no, 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 no one's going to pick up on that. Yeah. Same with the jokes in there. Like half the jokes in that the characters tell, I don't. I have no idea what he's going for. I'm like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be finding out. Some of them are funny because if you think about that character doing that, others, I have no clue what he's talking about, why it's supposed to be funny, what the, yeah. So Wolf was a very idiosyncratic dude. Yeah, yeah. He, was, he Here's a guy, spends all this time writing in his uh, his basement, comes out. <laughs> I mean, he, he was a he was in a sense a technical writer. So he, it does have to explain complicated facts, but he mm-hmm. doesn't really seem to rely too heavily on those skills when he would, you know, write fiction. No, I also think too, he, in some cases may have suffered from the problem of everybody told him he was really smart and such a good writer and he got confident. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> yes, sometimes that's a problem. <laughs> So, yeah, I don't. Yeah. I, and and once again, yeah, he has kind of esoteric ideas. I don't know. I'm not sure how much he really expected people to pick up on. He always acted yeah. like, oh, I'm not trying to be cagey, uh, just not caring. And uh, right. maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. I don't know. And going on with the, the issue of if Severian's mother, uh, Christopher Taylor uh, said, does Juturna have any sort of maternal connection to Severian? I can't say uh, that I'm yet convinced, but Severian does later express the opinion that saving another person's life renders you forever more beholden to that person. And Juturna has saved or will save Severian's life at least once. Yeah, I, I think in that case, Craig, I think because she refers to it in her past, uh, she must have in her own timeline already done it. Yeah. I think. And I don't think she's actually supposed to be his mother. She absolutely is symbolically his mother in that second chapter where she does either resurrect him or save him in the water or give quote unquote the birth. birth yeah. It's very much a metaphor for, for and motherhood. It's in 
so such proximity to the whole talk about symbols as well that yes something else is going on there and what's what you've also got is him without a real mother and always looking for things that could replace her i think and so in that moment when that happens because it's such a sort of powerful rebirth moment for severian once he makes the connection that oh the Undine was the one who saved me down there and all that imagery where it's like, she's holding him in her hands and like a little coffin or whatever that, I, you know, and, and yeah, um, it's totally put in there. And I think she becomes maternal in that symbolic world that symbols make us real. Right. I think there's mm -hmm. that sense in which she does. Uh, but as far as the suggestion that she was actually his mother in any timeline, I don't think it, works like that or in any way i think it does yeah. i mean I, I think this no, is I, the, yeah. the eternal struggle as we've we've always gone through is that when i see a metaphor i say oh well it's a this is a hint for something that right. is oh, yeah. literal within the text and i i can attest that not everyone uh, reads it that way no i was just i was just pointing out the other other yeah. side you have but, the trick here's the trick you you have you have two things one is you have the way you interpret uh, the text based on a particular uh, perspective mm -hmm. on interpretation. And then you have the other perspectives of interpretation. And uh, once you're done with that, uh, there's not going to be a whole lot of consensus between uh, the way people read these yep. books. Oh, no, no, no. But that's so, good. Since yeah. nobody knows which is Wolf's exact right way to do it, you got to keep working on all of them. That's, that's right. Yeah. You gotta, I, uh, try work on all the, uh, every timeline. So uh, Christopher goes on. He says, one clause that leapt out at me this time around was, I recall the witches, their madness and their wild dancing in the old court. It seems likely that the witches are primarily involved in predicting future events and likelihoods. And part of that seems to involve investigating alternative timelines. I actually do uh, very much agree with this. Hmm. I'm, uh, I'm hopefully going to have a lot more to say about the witches and their connection to Severian's long dead sister in a few chapters time. I know what chapters those are. And I'd be very interested to hear what Christopher has to say. I bet we don't agree. Um, cool. I'm still clueless on the witches. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me help you. Uh, regarding, uh, as you said, the, the the symbolism of birth when the Undyne saves Severian, um, Maximum Yogurt, 1495B, says, hey, I just realized during birth, the baby is upside down. Therefore, in an almost literal sense, falling upward out of the water. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Michael Andre Drisi so says, here's a new thought for me, at least. Maybe Thecla misses her mother, too. And this would be an unexpected similarity between Severian and Thecla. I like that. Yeah, so, so, so Thecla's memory might be a nightmare of trying to find her mother. The identity is not identified, which might heighten the role being hidden in the makeup refreshing room and not being able to find her, not because all the women are made up with the same artificial mask, but because her mother is actually dead. And the detail of Thecla's small size in the memory might mean that her mother died when Thecla was a child. But dreams are tricky in that way still. The point is made that Thea and Thecla are half-sisters, which might point to them having different mothers, which might point to a mother who died. 
the th this Thecla fragment has echoes of another Thecla fragment that one of the mirrors wherein the reflection of a grown Thecla steps away, and perhaps weirdly the mirror is empty, might suggest a fixed viewpoint, or it might not. Point here being that the similarities, the windows, mirrors, and the mirrors, the, the multiple identical images, the missing persona, it might even be a way of saying that grown Thecla was the image of her mother with all the orphan's heartache that would come with it. Hmm. Well, okay, yeah. He also uh, points out that the song that she sings at this point, uh, you know, the little folk song about the, the leaves missing its friends, uh, it links to the lines that she explicitly writes out in soap on a mirror. Lift, oh, lift me up, oh, fallen wood. As we see, horns of earth, you fling notes to the sky, green and good, green and good. Sing at my step, a sweeter glade have I. Lift, oh, lift me to the fallen wood. That's a pretty little song. Someone yeah. should write something, write an actual tune for that. Filk singers of the world. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and uh, Mantis also notes that the song and the soap words are explicitly linked to a memory bit in Earth and New Sun. Neil Smith Neil notes that Severian is paying mostly attention to Jalenta, even while he's with Dorcas. While she's on the other side of the fire, Severian is commenting on her looks and how she's sleeping, which shows that clearly that's where his attention is. Well, maybe. Maybe he's just, you know, not paying it special attention, but he's replaying it in his mind, maybe. But anyway, he says, meanwhile, Dorcas manages to completely undress without Severian noticing. Eh, she's, she's cagey, despite being next to him. And he downplays it later with the small comments. But it's pretty clear that Sev is paying more attention to Jolenta than Dorcas at first. That's actually, that sounds more credible the more I think about it. You tried to connect Thecla as a literal clone of Severian's mother, and I don't think that's right. I do agree that it's thematic, not li a literal connection, in that she can remind Severian of his mother. But out of this scene, I came up with another theory. So here's my curiositus earthus. All right, play the song. <laughs> curiositas earthus. This is out of the following elements. Thea and Thecla are half-sisters, indicating they have one parent in common, which wouldn't make sense if they were clones. You'd be identical or disjoint. Severian's memory dream leaps from him trying to find his mother in his memories to a memory of Thecla trying to find her mother at some event. What I gather is that Thecla's father is someone highly placed. They have a you know country estate after all. Well, you know, they are exultants. And his mother may have previously been one of the hostages at court, but no longer is. I think that's likely. So my theory is that Thecla's mother is Catherine, who has the child, Thecla. At some point, she leaves her husband and flees parallel to Syriaca's actions later. Wolf loves his parallel or mirrored actions. Thecla's memory is of looking at her mother after she left. Thecla's father gets a new wife and has Thea, half-sister, same father. Catherine takes up with Owen, but is caught and taken to the Citadel where she has Severian and is executed. Possibly has twins, as they note Severian has a twin name, 
in which case the girl would be given to some witches or may or may not be Marin. When Thecla comes to the cell, Severian sees his half-sister, who unknowingly has a strong familial resemblance to their mother and moreover sees her in context of the cell, which would be his only vague memory of her. If we want to extend this theory, and of course, why wouldn't we? I certainly would. This Catherine would have had a, a kybet, and the clone is around to help extend her life, either generally or as an exultant or specifically as a former concubine hostage to an autark. I'll call her Catherine with a K for Kybet, and Catherine is no longer needed as a Kybet once Catherine flees, and especially not after Kath is executed. She doesn't have the same exultant standing, though, and is probably kept around somewhere as a servant. By accident, unlikely, or design, in theories, Kybet Catherine is the maid who plays the part of Holy Catherine in the torturer's ceremony and gets to occasionally visit the child that is genetically her child, but not quite her son. I want to take this a step too far and make a connection to the Contessa and her maid, but Catherine C and Catherine K would be in the past while Contessa and maid are in the future, so I don't think it quite fits. I'll leave that as an exercise to someone else to work with. Um, the truth is, I think there's some validity to that. And some, to some extent, we are running along parallel lines. We just kind of move the pieces around a bit. So I like it. I like it a lot. What about you, Craig? Um, yeah, I think I have some of the similar reservations that I have to, to some of the others. But it, I do like the possibilities of connecting Thecla there. I mean, I think that's a way of thinking about it that I haven't before, finding that kind of familial connection. So, yeah, I'm intrigued. Yeah. Oh, just to clear, I and I, I've said it enough. I shouldn't have to clarify anything. Um, the reason I think that Thea and Thecla are half-sisters is because they're clone lines of sisters. But, once again, we're kind of working along the same lines, which I agree with and like uh, you know, with, with uh, different pieces in play. Yeah. Uh, Turambar29 uh, says that on the topic of the Ouroboros River, the Greeks called the river that encircles the world Oceanus, which was later adopted for a body of water even greater than the known sea, uh, the Thalassus. For what it's worth, Oceanus is also depicted as the rim of Achilles' shield in the Iliad. And yeah, I... Th I Craig, I think we, we did talk about that a little bit, but, um, you know, maybe I didn't cover it in sufficient detail because I just wrongly assumed that, yeah, everybody knows that. But here's something really interesting um, that he brings up that about Achilles' shield, that the, that, that the river Oceanus is Achilles' shield. Um, that works very well with a Hamlet's Mill perspective on myth. Yeah, as Hamlet's Mill notes, that Athena's aegis, her shield, has Medusa's face on it, and they assert that Medusa's face is the night sky, and they assert that the surrounding Oceanus is the edge and part of the heavens themselves. So you see, it makes sense that Oceanus would be the edge of Achilles' uh, shield hmm. and Athena's shield. It's, it's the same thing. They're both the night sky with uh, the, the, the ocean around it. Hmm. And so when you know Perseus chops off Medusa's head with Hermes' sword, 
he's enacting this, you know, the same event as when Hermes cuts the throat of starry-eyed Argos with the same blade. It's great. Cool. Uh, also on Twitter, uh, number one bestseller ending Bigly said, <laughs> is, I'm not sure if I missed it. Five episodes is a long time. But did you guys compare the play as we're given to Severian's brief description in Shadow? Armies marched and Talos and Baldi fighting until both were bloody. They stand out to me as not clearly being in the Claw version. That's absolutely true, uh, Craig. Um, but of course, we don't really see the end of that play, do we? Yeah, harder to know kind of what they what he meant. I mean, obviously, with like five actors, you're not going to really have armies. But I mean, there there were fights. Yeah, but were Talos and, and as I assume as the Autark and Baldanders, you know, fights until both are bloody. Of course, I don't I mean, know. It could be one of the soldiers who's bloodied by um, by when he attacks the Autark. Or, that could be yeah, it. But and then and then Baldi could be all bloody just from his his rage. Thing, so. uh, you know, I think, uh, honestly, I think it's probably a scene we just missed because Baldanders blew up the end of the play. You know, there are a lot of characters in that play that never actually end up in the play either. So yeah, that's true. Oh, maybe we should, hey, maybe we should uh, talk about the comments from uh, our bonus episode for, yes. the, for Christmas. Christmas in. Yes. Which I do still plan to write up my ending because after we finished, you added your little addition and then uh-huh. that made so many things click for me and i'm like yeah so now now i feel like i've unlocked it <laughs> like it, it's one of the few times i feel like oh i solved it i got it <laughs> yeah um a lot of people they, they, they did really love it uh there was one section uh there apparently we uh clipped off the end of the of your reading craig with our commentary yeah. you, you fix yeah you fixed that so if anyone has listened to it and said yeah well that was kind of a weird ending uh you can go back and hear that and hear the end of this story yeah you may have to like refresh your podcast feed because sometimes they'll download the file initially and you'll have to go back and that's true if you ever hear any podcast where there's like some technical error like that you can almost guarantee that somebody told the person as soon as they posted it and then they went back to fix it but sometimes if you still hear it you just need to refresh your feed and then it'll go restart getting whatever new file is up there. Right. Or I, you can always get it directly from the, from, from the Podbean website. Yeah. Precisely. So, uh, Neil Smith says, uh, oh, what a thoughtful Christmas present to us all. Thank you. He says, I'm afraid all I have to give you in return is a few scattered thoughts. That's all we ask for. That is gold to us. He says, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to at least wrap them up neatly. He says, first, You might be right about the four of them being time travelers. However, I don't think that is what June would have said. I was thinking that their position was closer to being the Magi, the wise men who are coming to celebrate the birth of Jesus. We usually represent them as being three, but there are other references to more, although I'm not sure if there's a specific reference to four. Now, that's a it's an important point that the uh, Gospels don't actually, well, actually, Matthew is the only one he talks about, it, but th- he doesn't actually name the number of wise men. There could be two, could be eight, <laughs> could be a whole big parade of them. But anyway, he says um, there could be three plus Naranda, uh, but I don't think that is need an explanation. In any case, I think that's the role they fill. Uh, could the four of them 
have been aliens? Uh, you dismiss the idea, probably because they did say they were human beings, but they could have been human beings in the sense that they were mortal beings rather than supernatural. Okay. Uh, during the questioning, the four wrong guesses are devils from Wyatt, demons, Brenda, and notice the subtle difference, angels, Giselle, and ghosts, Julius, I don't think I'd rule out aliens, but I'm not sure that's any different from time travelers, thematically speaking. They are still people who have lost or never found the Savior and are looking to capture that. Secondly, he says, I find it interesting that the visitors want a specific number for the seance. It's not just matching men and women, or they just need to add one man. They apparently want the number 12 and complete it at the strokes of 12. Is this a reference to the Twelve Apostles or something else? Third, as in th third person, the narration at the end, it seems to switch from first person to third person, which is jarring, but does it? I caught the following, but had to listen more than once to catch it. When describing the guesses of the party, and they went to Giselle, you get this line right after Giselle speaks. She looked at Wyatt and seemed hardly older than me, which is odd. This implies the narrator of a specific age, a kind of uh, young, but in that section, they've called out all the other characters by name. So who is driving at this point? That's a very good point. I meant to bring that up when in our conversation. Somehow I never got around to it. Well, I had, so this is kind of goes to my theory. This part, I don't know for sure, but it is possible that the narrator of that final section is basically the child. Um, and that the child is at that point going to be resurrected or, or going to be reborn as somebody, but I, I should lay out my whole thing before I explain that, but. Oh, um, okay. Well, that's uh, then you definitely have to finish that, Craig. Well, that I is something I no. have. I mean, it's basically yeah. your idea that the four of them are their family. They are the Christmas family come from the future, but it's within the context that the daughter explains, which is that what happens apparently is that there's a resurrection reincarnation thing going on. And these mm -hmm. people are reborn over time. And what's happening right now is that versions of them from the future are coming back of June um, of, of shoot. I've forgotten all the names, now, but, but of Mary of June of Wyatt and what's the dad's name. I forgot the dad's name. Julius. 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 So they are, the four of them coming back. And I think you might be able to mix in the grandchildren as well as possibly like, maybe it's one of the grandkids who's going to, Oh yeah. Yeah. Four. It could be, yeah. It could know. be Mary doing the ghost. Yeah. Uh, so, as, uh, but Mary gives that whole story. Right. And if you, if it's not them, then you, you what's the point of Mary's story and what's the point of the yeah. coming back. Right. It's like, you know, it otherwise we'll just sort of making up two random things that have nothing to go on um but no so she's like you know we're gonna we're in this like happy-ish purgatory now but we have to go back into the world relive and then the whole point is to get better and better and then once you're better you get to go on right so they're yeah they're come back they're improving their past exactly. uh, which is kind of the way i see the the book of the new exactly. sun as well it's, so. it's not far off right now i also think there, here's the part where you know we were talking about people who are see wolf as a very traditional christian versus someone else here's the part where i think the story i'm not saying this is what wolf believes but what he put in the story 
is no longer really what we think of as Orthodox Christianity, because mm-hmm. I think when uh, June gives the whole thing about nobody ever thinks about the child, you know, she's like, nobody ever to, to most of us, we would think, oh, yeah, that's the good old, you know, everybody loves the trappings of Christmas, but nobody thinks about Jesus's message of salvation. In the context of the story, though, thinking about the child means nobody thinks about getting ready for your next life. And mm. it, because what we have is this ghostly child who's wandering around, who is not like a proto savior for everybody else. It's just what one of them is going to become, right? It's going to be the next life cycle of this next person. And there's promise in that. There is eventually salvation in that because it's that process of learning and learning and becoming better that will eventually get you to get out of that cycle of reincarnation. But in this context, I think the symbolism of the Christmas story in Christianity rebirth here is not the traditional Christian salvation that specifically Jesus Christ came and saved everybody else instead. Right. It's not, I would say for instance, that some of his, uh, for instance, like how the Bishop came to in this game is a very traditional Christian uh, perspective, uh, very evangelical. Whereas this one, this one might the not be baby Jesus is basically not Jesus. Like baby Jesus is everybody who is able to have a new and better try at living, right. which is, that is not Orthodox at all. It's like, I don't even know if that's Christian <laughs> really anymore. Um, but I feel like that's kind of what's going on here. Cause then you have the actual unborn child who's about to come into the world we, I, I think maybe it's the grandkid. Like, I think that's my, my sense is that the suggestion is, you know, all the other four of the family members are all sort of accounted for in one way. And so maybe the, it's going to be who the grandkid gets to come up because that's where, when he has the little talk with June, Julius has that moment where he's thinking about his grandkid missing him and, and worrying about him and, you know, feeling that kind of touch for him. And that's where, I think maybe it's saying is that we could make things, you know, we can make hope for the people that we love if we find each other and we try to make each other realize what, what process we're into. So it's this very complicated thing of a family looking out for each other and trying to figure out how to help each other get better. So it's still a, it's still a very good message, um, but it becomes a very, 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 very different take on what the birth of the new child actually means. Uh, and I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. But but yeah, you're right too. If that is the case, then all of a sudden, the whole reincarnation and evolution cycle of new son, if you put those two together, all of a sudden new son doesn't look quite so much Christian because then it's not about Severian being a Christ figure for this whole world. Instead, it's more that idea of, oh, no, the Messiah is actually more like rev- a, a version of a kind of spiritual evolution on a big scale. And that's... Yeah, there's some real... Yeah, totally there's some, there's some scenes in... When we get to Silo the Autark, we're going to have to really talk. Yeah. And, and like, that's, there are some scenes that's really in that and also, it also in uh, the Book of the Long Sun. Um, I'm really torn about the directions to go 
in that. And if that is the case, I'm not saying that 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 means therefore that's what Wolf believed about Christianity. Even if that's right about the story, about doesn't mean even if that's right about New Son. I don't know that I have no idea what Wolf actually believed. I have no clue. But I do think that there's a strong case to be made that he's using Christianity and Christian motifs to mean something in these worlds that Mm -hmm. would be a little bit unrecognizable to a standard Christian story. It's not a Sunday school lesson. No, it's, I mean, it's speculative fiction, right? So it's, it's right. Exactly. Right. So yeah, he, he creates all kinds of worlds and including here we have a a spiritual world that he, he might, you know, not necessarily believe, but he thinks it's interesting to play with this way that it actually gives him the ability to say, okay, let's say you have reincarnation and people come back and you know, people always say, what happens if you run into your grandfather? What happens if you uh, run into yourself? What are the paradoxes there? Well, what are the paradoxes if you run into a former version of yourself and reincarnation? And that's apparently specifically what they're trying to do, right? It seemed to me, I wonder if there's something that what they're really trying to do is speed up the process, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I, I, think that sounds, I think that's very other. believable. Yeah. yeah. That they're, they're coming, that they're actually encountering, um, yeah. uh, reliving versions of their old lives, yeah. but, uh, trying to do things better perhaps. And maybe to learn about the sadnesses or the mistakes that the other people made. And so that they mm-hmm. can not make them or something. I don't know. I mean, it's right. that part's not as clear, but anyway, it's, yeah, I thought it was fascinating, but I, and I wouldn't have gotten there if you hadn't had your piece. <laughs> so thank you. The, uh, Oh, let's uh, see uh first person jugular, uh, in Reddit says, uh, my main thought is that these four mysterious travelers sure bear a strong resemblance to the time traveling protagonists of free live free, a salesman, a little guy, a big blonde mm. and a dark witch. That's a, yeah, that's a good catch. And that story is about, right, people sort of living different versions of their own lives. In a well, way. now I have to, re- I wonder whether I have to reconsider what that, that book is about. Hmm. And Turambar29 says, I enjoyed listening to the story and the discussion afterwards. I agree that the visitors are time travelers, people who have lost the core of Christmas, which emphasizes how even the Christmas family at the Christmas Inn are on the verge of missing the point as well. As for Julius's encounter with a ghost, what if the ghosts are not connected to the time travelers at all? What if the ghosts are completely independent and there to show the time travelers are not the most important aspect of the story? Kind of how the Herodules and the Hieroglamites are definitely below the increate of the new sun. They hijack the time traveler's visit with their own visit to impress the Christmas lesson on the Christmas family all the more. Um, it's interesting. It would just be that yeah. the ghosts don't really teach the Christmas story, right? <laughs> they teach reincarnation. Yeah. yeah, I want them to be more connected. <laughs> so, I reject that theory if, because it doesn't comport with my own. Yeah, if, so. they're, if they were doing something more traditional, but it does seem like, yeah, when Mary starts to talk about what that world is like, it's it's not even really like Catholic purgatory in any way. I mean, no, it's a different kind of purgatory. Yeah. It is a purgatory, but it's just not the way you imagine it. And that's, um, which is, yeah, that's, uh, that's, uh, that, that's totally fine. That's, that works fine. She's just saying, saying, yeah, maybe it's not, you know, little flames licking on you or anything like that. It's or a type of hell. It's, it's a different kind of, it's, it's different kind of spiritual yeah. agony. Yeah. Right. Charlatans and business.
Thank you, as always, to our wonderful patrons at patreon.com. You can find out all the benefits and listen to the extra episodes if you go visit patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. So we have a lot of people who joined up since our last episode. We have two new journeymen, Katie Crumpton and Bud Coutinho. And remember, at the journeyman level, which is just $2 a month, you get access to all the extra content that's all there. And then for a few extra dollars, you get a few extra things like some stickers and the most important thing, I think, the little musical tag after your name. So we have four new master patrons this time. Dank Fizzer. I hope you, I don't know if you pronounced it donk or dank. We didn't ask you, but if we need to change it, we certainly can. Hugo Prado. 25 rats in this Hugo boss. Carl Magnus Jacobson. Joseph Jacobs' favorite son. And Henrik Gustafsson. Thank you all so much for your generosity. It keeps things moving here, and like James likes to say, it keeps us feeling obligated to keep moving. We have to get on with this story, but just so you know, at the end of this story, now you won't hear it on your little podcast apps, but if you're listening to the patron-only episodes, then at the very end of this little episode here, we talk about Wolf's uncollected story, Thou Spark of Blood. So that's just a little bit of a little extra thing. Just for you people who keep this thing going and keep us inspired and obligated. We appreciate it. And now, on to the Odalisque. <laughs> Chapter 28, The Odalisque of Abaya. The Odalisque of Abaya. <laughs> we just had a conversation about how to pronounce this thing. <laughs> Google apparently has two different ways. It's Odalisque and Odalisque. I don't know which I, one is right. Uh, yeah, I, I bet it's, I, I'll bet it was originally Odalisque. <laughs> mm. I just think, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to do that. That would be, I would sound like a a jackass. <laughs> and so the Eudelis, I don't know if you are old enough to remember this, Craig, but back in the eighties, when they would talk about, uh, it became fashionable on the news when they were talking, when they would say something like uh, Nicaragua. Oh yeah. Uh, the but, Spanish oh, pronunciation. Nicaragua. Yeah. The extreme Spanish pronunciation, Yeah, <laughs> which I, I think that was an anchorman too. Didn't he come back and do that? Like anytime he like, he wouldn't Probably. do it with San Diego. I don't remember with, it, but with yeah, other that's, things. But oh yeah, and especially I mean I grew up in Dallas, so yeah, they they were very intense about that. <laughs> but it's yeah, from my it's it's going to be Odalisk. I'm sorry, that's just that that's going to be the official pronunciation of this podcast. <laughs> so we're on the same night as where we ended the last chapter. Mm -hmm. This is the following night after the play. The night after the company is parted with Baldanders and Talos. We are three and a half to four weeks since Holy Catherine's Day, uh, you know, two, two and a half weeks since uh, Severian was elevated. Severian parted with Jonas only the night before last, if you can believe it. And they got to House Absolute only the evening before that. Is that right? Yeah, the evening before that. Um, right. And Severian never seemed to get a good night's sleep. So uh, let's talk about the chapter title. Since other than just a pronunciation. Uh, the Odalisk of Abaya. An Odalisk is a slave concubine in a Turkish harem. He's elsewhere called she and her sisters, essentially the whores of Abaya. And now he's being more gracious. So, uh, Severian has awakened 
from sleep by someone calling him. And he's followed the sound to a sandbar uh, to discover a giant face looking at him from the water. And the sandbar is like a sandy pier jutting into the river. So, and this blocks the Undine's path up the stream. She can't pass beyond it, but Severian can use it to get to the middle where she, the Undine is. And I previously made much of the connection between the sandbar and the sand garden, the botanic garden. I believe there is a thematic connection and there might even be a literal plot connection since I don't know exactly what that connection is. I can't say one way But I liked it. It certainly yeah. clicked for me. It seemed to make some sense. I don't know if it's in, well, I'll put it this way. I'm, I'm satisfied enough with it to think that it was intentionally a double reference. Yeah. yeah. I think that when we get that in the sand garden, it always seemed obvious to me before that it was about the scene in Citadel. I think it could well also be in addition intentionally about yeah, this. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, that's true. Which would theoretically, possibly, potentially suggest some sort of connection between the uh, between the undyne and mm -hmm. Thecla, mm -hmm. right yes indeed yeah so let's go ahead and uh, read the end of last chapter okay it was not until it was within a few spans of the ripples that i understood what it was and then only because it opened eyes a face looked through the water at me the face of a woman who might have dandled baldanders like a toy her eyes were scarlet, and her mouth was bordered by full lips, so darkly crimson, I had not at first thought them lips at all. Behind them stood an army of pointed teeth. The green tendrils that framed her face were her floating hair. And the Undyne, whose name we will not learn until Earth and New Sun, went Severian, uh, I was going to say, uh, sends her back to save him from drowning in the guy. I'm not sure I've often said that, but really he just tells her that she did it, and so she volunteers to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so anyway, yep. uh, we learned this Undine's name is Juturna in Earth and New Sun. I'm trying to uh, discipline myself to always say the Undine since we don't really get her name and yeah. knows yeah. if yeah, we've been calling her, especially after the play, we've been calling her Juturna right. just totally. Uh, and the readers often struggle to find some connection to Lake Diaturna because you could almost pronounce the name of the lake that way. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't think anyone has ever successfully explained that connection. Not in my opinion. But on the other hand, I have an idea. Okay. I, I guess it's a Curiositus Earthus. Curiositas Earthus. Last episode, we discussed the not-so-vague associations between Severian's mother and others and his dream. And I suggested, well, isn't the Undyne also among those associated with his mother? And I offered some ideas about how that could be. Well, let's suppose, Craig, let's suppose I'm right that the exaltants duplicate by clones and that Severian's mother was a kybit in Thecla's clonal line, and the Undyne was also in that line, so that both Thecla and the Undyne and the maid in the elevation ceremony are all, in a sense, Severian's mother. Okay. Well, the answer almost unfolds on its own. Juturna, regardless of what her name was back at the House Absolute, could be a name chosen for its association with Lake Diaturna, where Thecla's chateau is located. Hmm. Of course, we don't get the 
Undyne's name in this volume, but you know, suppose Wolf chose it in uh, Earth of the New Sun just for its you know punny reason. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, this Undyne, who after Severian's dream, I consider so loaded with possible associations. This Undyne says, and when I talk, say after Severian's dream, I mean the one he just woke up from, uh, where he remembers his mother where he thinks of Thecla, where he's, he is Thecla, looking among all these women uh, for somebody. The Undyne says, I've come for you, Severian. No, you are not dreaming. And Severian can dimly see her naked body under the water. And he says, once before I dreamed of you. She replies, we watched the giant and so found you. Alas, we lost sight of you too soon when you and he separated. You believed then that you were hated and did not know how much you were loved. The seas of the whole world shook with our mourning for you, and the waves wept salt tears and threw themselves despairing upon the rocks. He's <laughs> a little overly traumatic. <laughs> but Severian says, and what is it you want of me? Only your love. Only your love. Huh. So this brings up some connections that I intend to address when we have more under our belts from this chapter. But this, uh, you know, what do you want? Only your love. If we believe what she says, it has a connection to one of my favorite Wolf short stories. So keep this assertion in mind. All we want is for you to love us. But we need to address something else. I've proposed that the dream that Severian has is a memory, not a dream, or a dream memory, and that it was something that happened maybe to the first Severian and Baldander's proximity stirs this memory. And this is a harsh strike against that, at least as much as the fact that the dream does seem to have been sent by the Undines. It could be, still be a memory. The pterodactyl critter that Severian was writing, uh, Severian said, for an instant we regarded each other, and I seemed to know her thought. You dream, but were you to wake from your waking, I would be there. <laughs> yeah. But it seems that, you know, she confirms that the Undyne sent the dream to him for some unknown reason, and readers have theorized that the dream was sent to Baldy, and who knows, maybe to warn him about Severian, and Severian intercepted it. But she confirms here, it seems, and she says that they were watching Baldanders and Severian happen to wander into the frame. They weren't looking for him at the time, but they recognized him when they saw him. And even though they are time travelers, she is going to tip that the moment she saves Severian in her past, that past is at mm -hmm. this moment. So this is, she's, she's remembering having done it. So this isn't, uh, you know, some disjointed time puzzle by Wolf. Severian almost drowned in his past, and and that is also in the Undyne's past as well. Do you, you think so? Is everyone following me here? <laughs> so, because a lot of times I read this and I wonder, well, maybe she doesn't remember this yet. Maybe that's in her future, but that's not right. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me there's an implication here that they can read his mind, or maybe they simply already know his story. That's the that's the question that I have about a lot of this stuff. And and so we'll mm -hmm. get to that in a second. I'll let, I'm going to let you finish this. Part. So even though she saved his life, it's not clear how she knows how alienated Severian felt on the day that he was exiled mm -hmm. or that he was exiled. 
unless they have a spy at the tower or and, and, and even then she seems aware of his inner thoughts and emotions. But um, well, last chapter I read from that 1983 interview from Thrust. And so I'm going to read from that again. Uh, the interviewer, Frazier, says, his talk with the Undyne in Claw is very revealing of his past and future. Severian seems to have some control over the immense and purposeful forces at work in his life. And Wolf answered, no direct control. He can be said to have indirect control, if you like, because the forces are responding to his actions in an earlier time cycle. Thus, their actions now are shaped by his earlier ones. So, in a response to a question regarding this meeting, Wolf says that the Megatherian forces, but not only them, he explains that they are reacting to Severian's actions in a previous time cycle. So if they have knowledge of that previous time cycle, then it is not necessary that they were reading Severian's mind. Uh, say Severian in that previous time cycle didn't meet Baldanders, but instead took up the Undyne's offer, and that the one she's about to make, and visited them under the water for a time. And then he poured out his heart about the Manichin and his exile, the way he did with Agia. So that... Bringing up Wolf saying that is sort of like, that's one of the theories <laughs> about <laughs> how the Undyne seem to know all this stuff about Severian. And I mean, I depending on how you take that part of the interview, that's either confirmation that, yeah, they're just, they were smart. They knew about his previous life cycle and are trying to use him and, and, and get him in this cycle to do something that they want. Maybe, um, that certainly seems exactly like what Wolf is saying directly but i think that that at least for for my purposes now we're going to still consider that a hypothesis not mm -hmm. not sure a direct video so in if it's not that though then it's a big question how do the megatherians know that severian is important and why mm -hmm. right and um we've been talking about how especially when in shadow there are all these hints that the world of that severian is moving through knows more about him than he knows about it right yeah. there's there's right. the, the Autark, there's the House Azure, there's the Autark who shows up there, there's these Megatherians who seem to know about him. He meets Talos, who seems to have some kind of knowing something, like even if just in a sort of weird, you know, off to the side wink kind of way. Father Anire seems to be doing things in the background that suggest that he's being watched or followed. So there's a lot there. And oh, 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 Typhon. Typhon seems to know he's important. That may be true. Typhon certainly reacts to him as if he is incredibly important, right? Like he's he is yeah, a yeah. contestant um, or a, a competitor, right. it seems. Yeah. Um, so this whole part back and forth right here, again, brings all that stuff that I feel like for a large part of Claw has kind of fallen to the side a little bit. That feeling that Severian is part of not just a bigger story, but that he's somehow being manipulated or whatnot. And this is the chapter where they come right out. And this is, I think, the first time some other character has just flat out told him, you are important to things you don't even know about. And he's gotten kind of weird suggestions about that. We've certainly gotten suggestions about that. But it's the first time I think another character has just flat out told him, we love you. You know, we've been watching you. We've been following you. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah please exactly. love us or please or maybe who knows what she means by that right maybe she, maybe she says please yeah. do. right 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 love i mean it's all couched in this weird sexual oedipal thing right here but yeah it could mean something you know much different when it could some yeah it could be something more sinister or uh having support the power you know, yeah, support exactly. us so or, or something yeah but I guess the question that I have here is why is it the Undines and Abaya in particular who are the ones that are singled out? Like that ought to really tell us something. So the fact that it is what, at least so far, I mean, earlier in the book, Jonas pretty clearly laid out, hey, the Megatherians are the bad guys. They're the ones that humanity is fighting a bigger war against. They're also the ones that essentially the Autark is fighting against. Okay, so then why do they have this interest in Severian. Okay. And, and I'm sort of asking that more as the sense of like, I just want to build up our understanding of the book, like from the base bare bones with no assumptions. Right. So when you first read this, you get the bad guys who are like, we love you. We want you. We don't want to kill you. We want you to join us right. or we want to seduce you or, or convert you or something like that. So it is then more of a kind of confrontation like to me if i was in this situation i would just be confused and have lots of questions severian as we know immediately starts to kind of see it as something he has to fight against right he's mm -hmm. got some instinct that he's got to resist this somehow but it seems to me like if you really are clueless about what's going on you would want more information i don't know yeah. anyway point is the the way that this is set up I feel like is is a on the one hand a clear confirmation that yeah Severian is important to forces in this world that we don't really understand yet but at the same time we just don't have any clarity yet about why like there's right, nothing yeah. in what she tells him here I don't think that actually clarifies why it suggests a lot of things but it doesn't at all say something like hey we want you to come with us so that you don't bring the new sun and it or it doesn't say hey we want you to come with us so that when you know, the new sun comes yeah you'll be can, on our we, side we can direct the world in the way that we want yeah right none of that is clarified but um anyway i just wanted to point that out as sort of this is a great kind of wolf moment where you get confirmation that something big is happening but it raises more questions than it answers but you have like five different options about what it might be yeah exactly <laughs> and you have to you have to parse every word. There's at any moment here that she could be lying or she could be saying things in a way that is different from what the way Severian is. Someone would naturally yeah. read it. Yeah. Right? And it's especially weird if you remember, and I let's even for a first time reader, let's assume you have to, that you remember that, hey, back in that first chapter, Severian said he was saved by one of these creatures. Yeah. That ought to at least come back and, and be like, okay, well, are they, are they responsible too for the sort of bringing back to life stuff and all the resurrection imagery? Do they have something to do with that? In the long run, I don't think so. But it seems like that has to be one of the first questions that comes up because Severian's already had the claw. We've got the healing. We've got him probably being resurrected, brought back to life from the, um, uh, from the contest. Oh shoot. The flowers. Ugh. What are the flowers called? 
the flower fight. Averns. Averns, thank you. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that he's coming back to life from the Averns. I thought you were being attacked by flowers just now. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> just very, very rough serrated edges. Or they're not serrated. They're just like super sharp. But yeah, we just, there are so many questions I have about what is Abaya's relationship? What are the Megatherians' relationship to everything we just heard about the new sun and the play that just came before that we get nothing up. What we do get though is immediately, and and this is where something, this goes against some of your stuff about the play, mm-hmm. but we get a big character here who's immediately trying to seduce Severian, right? And right. what does Jahi do in the play? Try to seduce Meshia, right? She's just always trying to to get him on her side. So we do kind of have that. And, and I feel like at least there is something set up there that, Jahi is probably, I think, the one character who's there most in the play and maybe is supposed to be the most memorable through all of it. And now here we get this giant green woman coming out of the water who's trying to seduce this guy. Yeah. But anyway, but that's that's all that stuff is kind of like the the set of associations and questions that I have when you get to this part of like, what is what is actually happening here? Why is she coming out now? Is this just another random crazy event in Severian's life? And I don't think so. I think what it really is, is confirmation that he is way more important to the story than he even really understands. But it still has all those questions. So I just want in the play, I don't want to really relitigate the play. Please, I don't want to go yeah. back to the play. Uh, but uh, does she? Does do you think Jahi at any time is trying to seduce Meshia? Um, she seems to be. She sees uh, the the Autark is interested in her, and, uh, and I think yeah, because even when Meshia, but and she attacks Meshia. Yeah, and I feel like I the way I took it was she because remember just when the autark and uh meshia have that conversation where he's like so if i do go have sex with her like she keeps wanting me to is that a good thing or a bad thing i guess it'll make her sad um so he says it we we don't like when we see he's 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 definitely feeling seduced by her whether she's actually yeah but and i mean i think she's always there the the way that he made it she's usually more just being bitchy with meshian Right, but <laughs> yeah. um, well, with, with the whole world, everyone's got problems yeah. with that woman. So, <laughs> but but yeah, no, I mean, I see it's it's yeah, it's not utterly clear in the play that she's like you know the seductress, although she does try to seduce the soldiers and you know all that kind of stuff. Well, it would be it would be odd if she wasn't doing anything to seduce Meshia. Yeah. So yep. because she is seducing everyone in mm-hmm. some way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, anyway, we should look and see what the Odalisk here. Yeah. Yeah. So does. yeah. So her hand sits on the surface of the water while she talks. And Severian records that her fingers are like logs and the hand is like, quote, a raft of five white logs. Mm -hmm. He says, here truly was the hand of the ogre whose fingertip held the map of his domain. Um, (laughs) I I, I don't think that that, I don't think, believe that this text is saying that Juturna is the ogre, but I do think it is implying that she is, of that race could be what do you think could be it's i mean it's definitely connecting her size to the ogre um which seems pretty clearly to put the megatherian as the or the ogre as a megatherian in some way Mm -hmm. or another which i think i think when we talked about it it seemed pretty blatant to us but i guess you know when you're first reading it you're probably not 
it, it may not be quite yeah, as yeah, obvious. Yeah, there's no way to connect one thing to the other. Right, yeah. right. The trick is that, you know, the fingertip held the map, right? So is there a suggestion? Like, is that just a fun figurative thing to remind you of the ogre story? Or is there something about Juturna that is supposed to be a map, mm. right? To spell yeah, something oh, out wow. for you. And yeah. I, I, get the, I get the feeling that it really is just a like, hey, remember that ogre? And here's a fun way to remind you. But I don't know. It's just the suggestion there that there's something about this that is going to lead to, you know, a bigger conflict later is suggestive. Yeah. But I don't know what it is. So uh, she comes on to him, even though these two are not going to get together anytime soon, right? Mm -hmm. She says, am I not fair? Where have you beheld skin clearer than mine or redder lips? <laughs> What ooh la la, yeah, <laughs> with the yeah. or teeth is sharp, yeah. Uh, it's a very concurs, <laughs> and he says he meant it. He says you are breathtaking, but may I ask why you were observing Baldanders when I met him, and why you were not observing me, though it seems you wish to. It's a very complicated question, mm -hmm. right? It's like if some <laughs> if some giant lady comes out of the water and says she was she wanted to watch me this whole time that I don't know that that I don't know that I'd be phrasing it quite like that. I'd be more like, what the hell? So, but anyway, um, okay. That's not Severian's way yeah, no, of talking. No, 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 no. He, he is more articulate, I think. So, um, but she says, we watch the giant because he grows in that he's like us and like our father, husband, Abaya. Eventually he must come to the water when the land can bear him no longer. But you may come now, if you will. You will breathe by our gift, as easily as you breathe the thin, weak wind here. And whenever you wish, you shall return to the land and take up your crown. This river Cephasus flows to the guile, and guile to the peaceful sea. There you may ride dolphin back, through current-swept fields of coral and pearl. My sisters and I will show you the forgotten cities built of old, where a hundred trapped generations of your kin bred and died when they had been forgotten by you above. I, oh, so I, get, I guess this is suggesting that there were there are undersea civilizations, right? Or, or it's yeah. an Atlantis thing, right? Like it's like there were there were other. You know, who knows that by that point, it may just be like California and Florida, right? <laughs> just, who knows? But they, but, well, but they, but they, they bred and died when they had been forgotten by you above. So, oh yeah, I guess, um, yeah, that's a weird phrasing, bred and died. Yeah. The phrasing would put it there. And, and I don't know whether that's. They were undersea cities and, but they had, you know, they, they had become, you know, separated from. Well, okay. So. That's a good question, because I always assumed that she was talking about where they, they bred and died long before they were forgotten by you. Yeah. I thought that's what she meant. But technically, where a hundred trapped generations of your kin bred and died when they had been forgotten by you above. So as if they had the land, they had been going underwater for a long time. I think yeah. that's literally what it says, right? Right. Yeah, that, I think so. Right? I, I don't think I picked up on that. That's not how I ever took it before, but I think think that's literally how it goes okay well there you go i mean if you really want to get into is that what wolf really meant did he mean like instead of when should he have said before in which you know i don't know uh, uh, we but, have to, all we have is uh, this so, yeah. all we have is the text literally it seems to suggest yeah that there were there were undersea kingdoms yeah hmm. she calls this little river sesaphus now we don't know if that's its name on the local maps or what the locals call it it's what she calls it. And it could be an ancient name or it could be a future name, Craig. 
Uh, mm. Sisyphus is a river either in the area of ancient Athens, actually two separate streams, or a river near Thebes, or a river in Argolis. In any of these cases, Sisyphus is the god of that river, and perhaps he is the god of all those rivers. But I think Lexicon Earthus has all the right tags here, and I'm going to follow the lead of that book right now. Now, as for the river near Thebes, that one is associated with Deucalion's flood, the Greek Noah. According to Ovid's Metamorphosis, after Deucalion and Pyrrha landed on Mount Parnassus, they consulted the shrine of Temis, the goddess of justice and law, which was beside the river of Sisyphus. So I suppose the Undine is Temis here, or it could be. But I think the other hook in Lexicon Earthus is better. Ovid's Metamorphosis says that Sisyphus was the father of Narcissus. Now, this is a story associated with Attica and Athens, so we're talking about those rivers. Now, Narcissus was a beautiful young man who was prophesied to, quote, live a long life only if he never discovered himself. And this is sort of Severian's story, trying to discover himself. And Narcissus does see a face in a stream, his own, and wasted away until he died. And there's some parallel to this. Maybe if Severian had you know, taken the Undine's offer, the new sun would not come, and Earth and Severian would have eventually wasted away. Or maybe if the Undine had been able to catch him, then he would have died. Anyway, mm. Wolf was digging deep <laughs> on this word, and it could have he could have associated any number of ways. Well, there are there are a couple ways that he definitely does kind of pull up some narcissist stuff with Severian. There's the whole, you know, going into my own ear and my own eye or whatever. Yeah. I forget which it, which it is. Is it right. his eye or ear? I think it's his eye. But... He goes in, I thought it was where he goes into his own eye, right? And yeah. it's just like, you know, I went all the way down and the universe was me. And yeah. I came back yeah. up and I was <laughs> the universe. Um, also, even the timeline thing about, you know, reliving this life over and over again right. is kind of narcissist, you know, just sort of going over and over in a circle. Right. Yeah, it's true where you see your, yeah, you're basically seeing your life in an endless loop. Yeah, exactly. But the difference would be that, Severian actually eventually would yeah. break out of that and and you wouldn't just have an endless loop. But there's something to that. Uh, one last thing. Uh, Mantis tells me that the name uh, Sisyphus in Greek means garden river. And, and I don't know where he got that, but hmm. it, if it is true, that's another sand garden true. reference. True. It works too that they're so, yeah. they're all green and the, yeah. Okay. Right. Yep. Hmm. So, uh, meanwhile, Severian tells the Undine, you are mistaking me for someone else. I don't have a crown to take up. And the Undine says, all of us will be yours there in the red and white parks where the lionfish school. So she just kind of ignores him, right? Yeah, yeah. No, no, no don't. <laughs> Never mind that. <laughs> and as she speaks, she lifts her chin and her head falls back so that her face her face is flat across the surface of the water, just barely submerged. So it's it's like a reflection in the water, mm. like a Narcissus looking at his own reflection, but also, Craig, like a pool of water in the wood. So again. Yep. yep, I was glad you mentioned that. And I mean, yeah, that mirror again, I like it. I like that imagery a lot. Notice that that makes Juturna quite rationally associated with the maid 
in civilians elevation ceremony. Mm-hmm. Yep. And we've already, I have already associated her with his mother, just like the maid. The undying here is like a reflection in a pool of water. Yeah. And we talked right? before somewhere, we've talked before about Wolf saying his earliest memory of his mother was of her like giant face, you know, <laughs> looming over him and like that. So, and I think that totally fits. I mean, there, there are a lot of giant women in wolf stuff, yeah, right? So that image think. comes back. And so for her to be associated with Severian's mother would, would not be out of place here, but yeah, I, I will say that apart from this and apart from the moment when she gets up out of the water, I always have trouble imagining and this this may just be a limit on my own sort of imagination of how to look at stuff underwater but it's hard for me to picture a lot of this stuff when he's you know above the water and she's under the water for the most part right like when he talks about her body and and whatnot and and they're also not in like a super deep part of the water so i just always have this this weird problem where unless she's getting out of the water or when she's just like this when she's lying flat I just kind of have a hard time imagining how did they look at each other and wouldn't like mm-hmm. half of her face be hard yeah, to well, see because it's nighttime and it's just, you know, I don't know. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but, well, I but, can help you. I'd love okay. Here's what I imagine. I imagine the sandbar is like a undersea cliff. Mm-hmm. So the sandbar kind of goes up and then it goes on the other side. But mm, on okay. this side of the sandbar, it just goes down, down, down really deep. So she's big. She's giant. Her body, she could fit under there, you know, just from your know, long ways, which I guess would yeah, probably okay. be about that makes a little more or sense. something like that. Yeah. And she, but here she, she kind of moves her body. So her face is up just under the, the water talking to him. And yeah. then he can see, you know, in the distance, her, the rest of her body going up. Yeah. I guess that makes more sense. Yeah. Cause I, I was just trying to think otherwise. I'm like, and, and I remember, I do remember, I, it, either the first time or, or of early time trying to imagine like thinking that, Oh, she said the, the stuff gets really shallow here. So here she is some like what, 30, 40 foot tall woman or something, but she's in like four feet of water. Yeah. <laughs> I remember being like, wait, how does this possibly, but yeah, I just, I, the river's got to be bigger here than I was thinking. Right. For it to make sense. Yeah. So then her throat rises, uh, he calls it her white throat. And remember that Severian himself is remarked to be super white. Mm-hmm. Thecla says that everyone talks about her white skin, but she's nothing compared to Severian. And I've argued that uh, Thecla is like a genetic twin of Severian's mother, but Severian's actual mother, the mother, the woman who I have said his, his said is his mother. She has like an olive complexion. Mm-hmm. But the Undyne, the woman, I think, has been strongly associated with Severian's mother. Here she is with super white skin because, you know, they're under the water and they need no protection from the sun's rays. I, I don't understand it. I, I know I've theorized that the Undine is Severian's mother, but I don't believe she is this white because she was born that way. And all the complexities in the book and the it is this that would most attract me to Peter Wright's theory that Severian is a puppet of remote forces. Yeah. And that actually makes more sense to me too, that it's, if you become an undine or, or part of that race, that you have this less, your skin is less interactive with the sun, right? And that right. would make yeah. Severian a weird counterpoint, but the green man needs to be green because he's making, he's, he's making food for himself, photosynthesis, right? right? All the time. Um, but, for 
her to get more pale if the if the undines are more pale and also remember the ashians are always said to be very pale and and sort of sickly deathly looking right like right. they're they're also very pale and sort of because they're um, so yeah because they're separated i mean symbolically they're separated yeah. from the sun right? but that's another they point cast where no shadow right exactly that's, that's yeah, yeah, one yeah. way one way to cast no shadow is to always be at noon which Ex refers yeah. to someone who lives at the equator equator yeah. the other way to cast no shadow is to always be in darkness yeah so I like that too, because it definitely connects the Ashians and Abaya with this sort of world away from the sun. The irony of it though, is that, yeah, Severian's pale too, and he's supposed to be the one who brings the sun, but yeah, whatever. Your symbols can't always be perfect, <laughs> perfectly <laughs> consistent, but and in this case, yeah, that makes more sense to me too, because otherwise everything is green. Like it's, she's all underwater. There's the green hair, which could just be how things look underwater or something like that. But when he talks about her skin being pale, that to me, in sort of every case in here, except for Severian, that seems to indicate some kind of anti-Yasadi, anti-good kind of <laughs> creature. Right. And also, I have another reference. I don't know if it means anything, but Thecla, you know, white Thecla, who is still not so white as Severian, She's Thecla, the servant of Abaya, who says to Severian that he should, quote, flee the sun. And so here we have Undine attempting to persuade him to do just that, to flee the sun under the water. I don't know what that means, <laughs> if it means anything. Very cool. Very cool. So her, her white throat rises until it too, like her face, is parallel with the surface of the water and the rest of her. And he says, she lay at full length upon the current, 40 cubits at least, from alabaster feet to twining hair. Uh, notice that she has feet, not a fish's tail. Uh, not, a not a mermaid. Not a mermaid. And 40 cubits is about 60 feet, just over uh, 18 meters. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So... Taller than I said before. Yeah. Yeah. So she's she's almost the length of two school buses, at least. And that's over 11 times larger than a normal woman. So the, the length of her hands are like the length of 11 women's hands end to end. But now that she's stretched out along the surface of the water, her breasts, as Severian says, her, quote, crimson-tipped breasts rise above the surface. Remember, Severian has just been dreaming about nursing on breasts that compared to his infant self are giant. And Severian says, quote, little lapping waves caress their sides. And that does a couple things. It could just be a good connection between this and sort of mother figures. It also does go back to something about the Undines being able to project dreams or something like maybe since she knew she was going to come seduce him that got in his subconscious somehow and turned into that mm -hmm. memory of his mother. Yeah, or whatever. Yeah, I don't know, yeah. but it's certainly, I, I mean, I feel like that has to be not just a sort of weird sexualized moment here, but actually deliberately calling back to something about that dream. I think so. Yeah. I think, I think so. Yeah. So Severian says no one who reads this perhaps will understand how I could be drawn to so monstrous a thing. Yet I wanted to believe her, to go with her, as a drowning man wants to gasp air. That's an appropriate <laughs> simile. If I had fully credited her promises, I would have plunged into the pool at that moment, forgetting everything else. And then she says, you have a crown, though you know not of it yet. 
And you think that we who swim in so many waters, even between the stars, are confined to a single instant? We've seen what you will become and what you have been. Only yesterday you lay in the hollow of my palm, and I lifted you above the clotted weed lest you die in guile, saving you for this moment. Um, just for the, I just want to point out what you will become and what you have been. At this point, I want to direct listeners again to our first Severian discussion with Michael Andre Driussi. Uh, I say the first Severian comes from a previous universe, and Mantis says that he's the first iteration that our Severian is overwriting. And, you know, if we try to impose a, a mini-worlds model of time, then I suppose First Severian could be in a separate parallel branch. I, I'm even less satisfied with that than Manus is, but, you know, there it is. It's, but the point is, you know, she knows not only what he will become, but she stipulates she knows what you have been. Is there an alternate way other than what I'm thinking Well, that you could take that statement? That could mean a couple things, I suppose. It could be talking about multiple timelines. It could also just suggest that they know how to time travel, right? That they, or that their perspective is yeah. cosmic rather than... But it's not just talking about, we know you used to live in a, right. the mass. Right, no, power. I think, I mean, because right. I, I think what she's referring to there is when she says, we see what you'll become and what you have been, she's talking about the crown, right? I mean, I think that's what she's, I think yeah. that's what she's saying is that, yeah. You've worn a crown before. Yeah. So whether that means that again. he's become yeah. autark before or whether it means that he's passed the test before, it, it's not clear. But I think it's, mm -hmm. again, one of those very clear moments where they're pointing out, hey, there are cycles of time that have been going on and people are watching you from, from that kind of perspective. Uh, but it doesn't tell them exactly what is at stake in all of that but it definitely does i think it's about time travel like i think this is one of the clearest points before we get to you know master asher or the the corridors of time yeah that, well she yeah and she specifically said yeah exactly we, so we travel in time. yeah now yeah. when she even says even between yeah. the stars that's where i want to know more about that because that just raises a lot of questions about what the megatherians are i know i used to and probably in some ways still do think that they're supposed to be originally some kind of like cthulhu like aliens or something which would make sense of them coming between the stars like Yarlahotep or whichever one it is that is, travels in the vacuum of space and lovecraft stuff or whatever and then finally comes to earth i forget um but it's just such a cool thing no so anyway the space thing is really cool to me, but I don't know that it necessarily does anything then complicate what we got here. The clear thing is, yeah, why are we confined to a single instant? Right? We can go back in right, time. So yeah. yeah, it's not just that she remembers, it's I mean, she even says, Only yesterday you lay in the hollow of my palm. I guess it's conceivable that she literally means yesterday. Um yeah, in her experience. No, why should we not take yeah. her literally when she's a time yeah. traveler? Yeah. Um, which would, yeah, that'd be, so that would suggest that, you know, in, in the morning she, she saves Severian and then in the evening she, um, she, she encountered him, you know, in Baldender's bed. And now here she is again, uh, the night, the next night, yeah, right? It's, it, it's not spelled out clearly at all, but she's suggesting that, that it could be that way. She has also talked about, you know, having to follow them and then losing him for a yeah. while and then following him again. So I, I, yeah, I don't know. So uh, 
Here, as I said earlier, she remarks the fact that she saved Severian, and she says she saved him for this moment. I mean, that's a kind of a, a big deal. If, if they wanted to stop the new son, she just could have just not saved him, right? She, what she wants is for this moment, this moment when he'll come with mm -hmm. her underneath the sea, yep. right? Yeah, that seems pretty clear. Yeah. Like the Megatherians don't just want to kill Severian because they had lots of chances. I mean, they, they are literally in the right. first chapter, apparently the ones who save him. So yeah, it's not about just wanting to destroy him to make the new son not come. It's something right. about getting him on their side. Oh. Yeah. Uh, now, something about the way she talks. She's under the water. Severian's not sure how he's hearing her. He he says, I watched those huge lips part. I cannot say how loudly she spoke in the river that I should hear her where I stood in the air. But again, fish leapt at her words. I think that her voice carries to Severian in a way like Dr. Island in the novella the death of Dr. Island. The sound of the fish and the sound of the waves are shaped to carry the sound to Severian. That's just a total guess. That's how I read it too. Yeah. But because the first time yeah. he says he hears something is when he hears the fish jump out of the water, right? Which then becomes right. her calling his name. Yeah. So, so yeah. Severian says, look, you say you'll give me the ability to breathe water. Fine. Give it to me and I'll test it on the other side of the sandbar. And if it's true, I'll go with you. And she replies, it's not so easily done as that. You must come with me, trusting, though it is only a moment. Come. Mm. So this sounds believable to me. <laughs> also, she is right. It has to be admitted that she could have let Severian drown just over a year ago, if that was what she wanted. And I could see that the power to breathe underwater could very well be something that she can't just hand over to him. She says that if he changes his mind, he can just return to land. And to be fair, that is not so obviously true. He might lose the ability to live on dry land. But then again, Baldander's leapt into the sea and we see him later breathing air as happy as can be. But the Undyne stretches out her hand to him. And at this moment, Severian hears Dorcas crying for help. Severian turns in that direction. This is a pivot point. Severian thinks it's very... <laughs> Literally a pivot point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Severian thinks it's, it's very possible he might have stopped at that moment and followed the Undyne into the water. But when Severian turned, the Undyne stops the gentle seduction. Yeah. The river itself seemed to heave from its bed with a roar like breaking surf. It was as though a lake had been flung at my head and it struck me like a stone and tumbled me in its wash like a stick. A moment later when it receded, I found myself far up the bank, soaked and bruised and swordless. Fifty paces away, the Undine's white body rose half out of the water. Without the support of the water, her flesh sagged on bones that seemed ready to snap under its weight, and her hair hung lank to the soaking sand. Even as I watched, water mingled with blood ran from her nostrils. She's not able to leave the water, and only this little bit has her bleeding from the nostrils. So this leaves us with the question, what did the Undine intend? If Severian walked to her hand, would she then have violently grasped him and drowned him? Or if she had been able to grasp Severian in this last-ditch moment, would she have pulled him under and shown him that she really could do everything she'd promised. Would Severian have been allowed to leave if he wished, or would he become 
Abaya's prisoner or the prisoner of the Undines. You know, we don't know. No. But that introduction by the Undine, what do you all want from me? She says, only your love. I see a parallel in a wolf story that I think is highly underappreciated, but I've mentioned it a lot, and I probably will continue until I think someone is loving it as much as I do. That story is Counting Cats in Zanzibar, and you can get it in the Strange Travelers collection. And this story is just the sort of female protagonist that some have claimed Wolf cannot write. She is She's like a lot of Wolf's best protagonists. Joan Gordon calls them uh, lost boys. They're broken people, usually men, who are on a journey to discover themselves or rediscover themselves. Number five, Den Weir, Severian, Latro, Green in their adores, Silk, uh, the Rajan in the Book of the Short Sun, Abel in the Wizard Knight. The protagonist in Counting Cats goes by multiple aliases, so we don't know her name. She's, she's constantly on the run because she's constantly pursued because she runs. She was the lover of a scientist who created the sentient androids. She was his inspiration for his creation. She says that she's not their creator. She's God's fingertip, which reminds me of the ogre's fingertip in the tale of the student and the mm -hmm. son. And that is why the androids pursue her. They only want to bring her back in order to honor her. She's their Virgin Mary, but she doesn't want to be honored by them. She's against the android project. People say Wolf only writes women as archetypes. Well, she's an archetype and she's fleeing being an archetype. The android who's pursuing her says that she shouldn't worry that they'll ever replace humanity because they're too expensive and too difficult to build. He says there will never be enough of them to fill a room. But she says, well, maybe, but you will fill it from the top. So I think maybe the Undyne is for Severian like the androids are for her. She wants Severian to come back with her so that she and the other Undines can honor him. And when they do, you know, will they actually let him leave as promised? I'm not sure. I think they would make that very difficult and it would be very difficult anyway. We, we've seen the strange power of desire that her presence may be exerted on mm -hmm. him just by her presence. Yeah. If Jaterna is Severian's mother, she's the bad sort that infantilizes her child to keep him always by her side, loving her alone. And so this makes me consider the Megatherians' motives. It's commonly assumed that they want to stop the new sun. But then there's the question of why. The new sun flood wipes out humanity, not the Megatherians. They live under the sea. I propose, well, maybe they don't want humanity destroyed. Maybe the current civilization is to their liking because they run it. But now I'm thinking, maybe it's something else. And this occurs to me now that I believe, and I do believe this, that the Megatherians are from the future and after, from after the new sun. And understanding that I picked up from the play. So I have a curiositas earth this. Sweet. Curiositas Urthus. When Typhon meets Severian, it's obvious to me that he recognizes him as the conciliator. He implies that he's the conciliator. For him, it hasn't even been long ago, shortly after he dies and his followers abandon the mountain. So he wants Severian to worship him, and he says that if Severian worships him, then the conciliator will worship him too. What he wants is to affect his own past with the present. I think Abaya, who comes from the future, wants Severian on his side when the new sun 
comes to change his own past, which is in the future, for the better. Remember what Jahi says to Meshia, the first man in the play. Before the new sun rises, let us make a new beginning. And incidentally, I realize this is what I've been saying the first Severian has been doing with our Severian in this book as well. Cool. So hold on, let me think. I'm thinking because I actually kind of like where that goes in some places because I have continually come to the same kind of point, which is that, yeah, I don't really understand what the fight with the Megatherians really is that I assumed, yeah, they didn't want the sun to come. They wanted to keep humanity as slaves and what the new sun was, was going to help humanity evolve and become better. That simple version of the story makes sense, but I'm trying to think of the logic. So if the Megatherians were from the future, is there some way that they could actually be part of the evolved people, but who just didn't really quite understand their true nature, like they didn't really understand their part in the larger evolution or something like that. I, I suppose it could be. I mean, yeah, well, I mean, you know, they're people always nice. <laughs> you know, they have their own interests. Yeah. And it's not an issue that they're against humanity. It's that they want humanity in all their environment at all times to serve their ends, which is not that different from that, which is exactly the same thing everybody wants, right? Yeah. We all want to thrive. And, you know, everyone is just a, a, a bit in our great epic. So, so there's like that. They've, they've gone to the past. They're affecting their own past. And here's a, it's a very, a very important part of their past. And they want to, you, they want him to be on their side. Yeah. Could be when that, when that past when they and and to manipulate their own what they're trying to do is is manipulate their own future selves, yeah. Or well, in their case, their past selves, right? <laughs> yeah, which is what humanity is doing too, right? With Yasad, or yeah. The other thing though is, I wonder if there is some way that it's not just that Baldanders is like them, but uh, the Hyrodules even say at some point, right? They're they're giving. Baldanders the technology so that in the coming bad times they can use the thing. Well, what if, what if they're just using, yeah, that they're. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I said, I think that Baldanders is like their Adam. He's, he's the one who's going to provide all the technology that they need to become who they want them to be, want to be who they will. And Nod does say in the play, like if Baldanders is Nod, Nod does say in the play, I want my children to be married into this new Thing. Yeah, I, I, thing. I want him to marry my daughter, right? Right, which could be the odalisk of Abaya. Yeah. I mean, metaphorically or whatever, but that would, right. there's something to that that fits with the play. Like the Megatherians, I don't think, really directly show up in the play as like the, the way that, that Mark and I had been talking about it. There's never really an analog for the Megatherians, apart from Nod being really big, who I think we all assume is a bio. But if you take the least complicated connections, then Nod is partially Megatherian, or at least he, he could be like their their father in some ways. And yeah. huh, okay, that's going in a lot of directions that are interesting, but I don't think I'd thought of before. So uh, Craig, we've been talking this long, and in the original volume, 
This chapter has seven pages yep. and we've got through about two of them. <laughs> but, but I think we're going to go through the rest of this a little faster. Yeah. Well, the rest is a little more, it's different. It's not talking right. about, yeah. I mean, as soon yeah. as you get a big undine show up, the first real Megatherian we've actually seen. Yeah. We're going to have to stop and, a lot of stuff. and yeah. speculate about it. Yeah. So Severian runs and by the time he gets back to the fire, the undine is gone and there's nothing left but swirling water and silt. Dork is, is like, what was that? I mean, Maybe she could have still been horrified by the Undine if she saw her in the water, but she only saw her out of the water with her lank hair and sagging flesh. She says, how horrible, horrible. And she's clutching him. So Severian is back to business here. Why'd you scream? And she points to Jalinta where the ground is soaked with blood. There are two narrow cuts in her wrist about the length of his thumb and he tries to heal them with the claw but you know no good and the blood won't clot they soak several bandages with blood so severian finally sews the wounds shut with a thread and a needle now severian's going to decide that she was attacked by a blood bat and there's been a lot of reasonable speculation that he's wrong about that that jalinta tried to kill herself and i'm willing to say that based on the evidence that is not the case Jalinta was just extremely unlucky in being attacked by an animal, which was the thing that she was most worried about. If she wanted to kill herself, she would have, you know, would have done more than nick her wrists with two small cuts. Yeah, maybe unless it was like a call for help kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And also, I assume that she'd do it with both wrists. And then, you know, there's the, the wounds that won't clot. And, you know, this is what, you know, vampire bats do. And mosquitoes numb the location where they bite so that you very often only feel it after they leave. And this strikes me as the result of an animal attack where they need to feed off someone. Oh, yeah, the line. It seemed that the blood that welled from them would not clot. So, right. yeah, which, interestingly, that comes in the line when he says, I touched them with the claw. Um, and... And it almost yeah. makes it seem like the claw was. <laughs> well, what do you think? Like the claw maybe did that, so if, you, so she would bleed faster. I don't know. I mean, or, or bleed out the poison if it. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Um. And I, I still feel like I lean towards the fact that she did it to herself. Like mm -hmm. even if it was not, like you said, meant to be effective, like it was more of a kind of cry for help or a that kind of suicide hmm. attempt, but it still seems like to me, something that is totally fitting with her mindset. Yeah, well, I gotta but you're that. right too, that she's like, I'm scared of the monsters that are going to eat me. Right. She did say that too. So right. it could be calling, calling out that. Yeah. Hmm. Well, you know, in all of this going on, Jalinta is less than half conscious. She'll occasionally open her eyes momentarily, but, there's uh, not the sense that she's looking at anything. And once she did murmur, now you see that he whom you have esteemed your divinity would countenance and advise all I have proposed to you before the new sun rises, let us make a new beginning. It's her line from the play. Mm -hmm. Severian didn't recognize it in this moment. Which is another weird memory yeah, thing, yeah. right? Yeah. But. Obviously, I see in this quotation from the play a meaning of something for Severian's encounter with the Undine, but seems like it should be. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm bothered by the part of the line quote. Now you see that he whom you have esteemed your divinity 
would countenance and advise all I have proposed to you. I mean, like, would the first Severian have wanted Severian to take the Undyne's offer? Because that was what he did, if my line of interpretation is correct. It seems that the Undine would say, you know, yes, uh, the first Severian, whom it seems to me Severian will, in a sense, pray to in Citadel of the Autark, this first Severian approves. Let's do it. Uh, help the Megatherians. But if that's what he would have liked, then, you know, things didn't go according to plan. Because our Severian has Dorcas with him, which is something the first Severian, I don't think, did have. And Dorcas screamed out, and Severian hesitated, and the Undine lurched, and the moment was spoiled. So that line, so that line actually is something Jahi says in the play, while the Autark has been speaking, and she creeps up behind Meshia and then says that and says now that's he who the guy you think is god would tell you to do everything that i've done right after the autark said yeah i totally get it when you want to go off a little country girl and you want Mm -hmm. a little 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 something different and you're like yep so that's the way i take that then is that it's her sort of explicitly i feel like for us at least for the reader connecting what just happened to something in the play like that's honestly i mean i don't Again, not piling up evidence or something, but that moment is, for me at least, an, another moment where it, it seems like Jahi would be aligned with the ending because that's exactly what Jaterna just tried to do. Yeah, you know, I mean, I I find that hard to uh, disagree with. Yeah. Now, exactly what it means, like, is it then all a lie? Because then what it would be suggesting is that okay, and everything then that Jaterna just offered to him would be a lie, if it supposed to be that straightforward well if you think that everything jahi does is lie i mean she's she's kind of, she's an adversary but she doesn't mean that she's would be right yeah and everything gets more complicated it's also just a weird line to say before the new sun rises let's make a new beginning because you'd think the new sun itself would be the new beginning if if this is happening before the new sun and the megatherians are coming from after the new sun then if we they do something now that changes that in some way. It makes a new beginning. There's still going to be a new sun, but it'll be something will be different. Anyway, that's how that was my theory. Yeah, so. no, and that makes sense because it. And I feel like there's so much about how the play tries to portray Jahi that would suggest that it's somehow not going to be good, right? That she's going to mess up the grand plan somehow. But then there's later parts of the play where it suggests that she's been kind of somehow turned to the good. Right. Or she's when, like after she talks to the. Of course, the high rows, you know, just because the high rows are, are against her. Her actions doesn't necessarily the high rodules, you know, doesn't necessarily oh, yeah. mean that she's for the bad it just means that she has different interests. Right. And that's where it gets all confusing because it's easy to be like, yes, angels, megatherians, devils. It's simple as right. that. Right. But it's it certainly isn't working out that way. Um, the kind of cool thing or interesting thing is that when Jahi says that she says it in the middle of despair, right? Like it's, it, yeah, not, jo- not just Jahi, Jalenta. When Jalenta says that she says it in the middle of her despair. And there's a couple things that could come from that. Either one could be, you could see it as the outcome of that also being despair of like, let's like, she's turning away from the new sun by wanting to kill herself. Or, or, or maybe she wants, yeah, maybe it's, it's expressing her desire to die. Could be that. Yep, exactly right. 
Um, in which case the new beginning before the new sun would be death, oddly enough, before, I guess, resurrection. I don't know. Um, but you could also see it as her wanting that new beginning. Like she's she's just in the depths of despair and so wants some new beginning. So it's it's a weird but perfectly appropriate thing for her to say at that point. But yeah, I so apart from the connection to Jahi, I still think that for me, that weird thing about how do we interpret the new beginning before the new sun rises, that's kind of the key. Like if I knew what that meant, then I would feel much stronger about knowing like who the good guys were and who the bad guys were. <laughs> but I, I think it's probably not going to be quite that simple. And I, I feel like in the end, you're probably right that just as Severian is neither perfectly good nor perfectly bad you're not going to necessarily have sides that are perfectly good or perfectly bad right yes it, they look like angels but you know we're gonna see the whole sort of underbelly of the asadi world where the people have to work up their way and and to be you know that that um that she shows him and all this thing and then we start to wonder well are they doing this for their own good for our good or are we just being manipulated by somebody so all these things seem to fit a certain pattern but then the more you learn about them the more complicated and messy things get um so unfortunately all i have at the moment is more evidence of the messiness <laughs> well everyone seems to have a, a motive but and they're all connected to the variant, but they're all mm -hmm. different. And it's it just, you know, it's it's kind of the kind of thing that we see in some Wolf's writing, all going all the way back to Operation Ares, where you have all of these different connivings and parties all working around. It's it, you see he does it again in an evil guess. Yeah. It's uh, and it's not about good guys and bad guys. It's about someone who has to make a choice. Yeah. And I think probably in the end, that even makes more sense of Earth of the New Sun, like because it's so easy to see that book as just the Asadis have this big plan and they're putting Severian through the motions. But the way the second half of Earth goes, it does seem like Severian starts just kind of making his own choices. And right, yeah. the fact that he does start to really, truly fulfill the role of the conciliator at that point may be the point that it's it's only after he makes that choice that good things really do start to happen. And there's something about his choice to actually help people and, mm -hmm. um, you know, try to improve the people around him, help the people around him that. Yeah. Or provide hope. Yeah. 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 Christian, but not, not easily Christian as if right. he just comes back and saves the world. And yeah. Yeah, him. exactly. And you pick the right side. Yep. Yep. So let's see, finally they stop the bleeding and they move her to ground that isn't covered in blood and they clean the blood off of her and she's going to deteriorate for the rest of this volume. Is it because, you know, the blood she lost or because she's losing Talos's special treatments or because her heart is broken or the prospect of the loss of her erotic beauty? You know, can we know this? I, I feel like it's got to be all of it, right? And she didn't really have anything to hang on to, right? She didn't have any other aspect of her life that she found good or that she wanted. She didn't have some kind of, honestly, she didn't have a symbol to hold on to. <laughs> like Severian's <laughs> got a few symbols that he can hold on to that'll keep well, him thing, Yeah, the only thing going. she was thinking about was going back to be a waitress. The only yep. thing she's trained for. And, yep. uh, and, and basically just starving and surviving by begging for money from patrons. She doesn't even yep. get paid. Yeah. So Zavarian goes back to the sandbar 
defined terminus est, which I think shows some growth on his part that he didn't leave Jalinta to lay in blood while he went to look for his sword. Yeah. Uh, apparently, even though he was war, just about ready to leave her with them when they're going to yeah, kill that's her, true. Like, that's eh, true. Well, well, he didn't know if she was bleeding to death at the right. time. And, right. 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 Yeah. So apparently, for a while, the Undine had caused a tidal shift that the had the sandbar underwater for a while. He finds the sword stuck deep in the sand. Zavarian does something in this novel that, you know, it's kind of unique among fantasy stories, at least up to this time. When his sword gets wet, Zavarian cleans and oils it. And you never read other fantasy characters doing this. Not in Tolkien or any of his predecessors. Archers never stop to oil their bows or unstring them in the rain, something like that. So Severian and Dorcas sit down together and catch up on what happened and what they should do next, considering Jolinta and all, you know. So he tells her about his dream in Baldander's bed and about how she, she, the Undine called him and what she said to him. And he doesn't say he told her about the Undine saving him in the guile, but from what she says in a bit, you know, it's obvious that he did. So Dorcas knows as much about the Undine as a first-time reader would know. And Dorcas asks if Severian thinks she's still down there in the water or at the bottom, too deep to see. And Severian doesn't think so. First, based on the blood he saw coming out of her nose, he thinks that she was injured by rising above the water, uh, just even for that sh short instant. And her skin is so pale. And Severian thinks that she couldn't stay very long in the clear, sunny day in an a river that's not deep enough to be in darkness at the bottom. But in answer to Dorcas's question about whether Severian would be able to see her at the bottom if she were there, he says no, because the water's too roiled and cloudy. Either it's you know like that all the time, or it's like that because of all the stuff she stirred up. Anyway, dawn's breaking. Yeah, it's another weird sort of almost engineer-like moment where he... Yeah. yeah. I mean, it seems to me like if she was offering you magic water breathing, then she could hide in different ways. But he's like, no, no, no. I know how sand works. <laughs> I've got, to, let me explain. By the way, I totally expect somebody now is going to be like, here's the part where Tolkien has Strider. Or his... <laughs> yeah. Okay. So Dorcas, who had never looked more charming than at this moment, sitting on the ground with her chin propped on one knee, was silent for a time and seemed to watch the eastern clouds, died cerise and flame by the eternal mysterious hope of dawn. Eastern clouds died cerise and flame. A cerise is either cherry colored or a deep bright red with a pink tint or uh, you know, a deep to vivid purplish red. Dorcas figures that she must have wanted Severian very badly. To get here, she had to swim up the guile, filthy guile, she calls it, and then up this stream, she figures she planned to snatch Severian as they crossed, but the sandbar blocked her path. So she called him over to her instead. And she says, quote, altogether, it can't have been a pleasant trip for someone accustomed to swimming between the stars. I, I, I wish we had Dorcas helping us with these <laughs> chapters. So uh, Severian is surprised Dorcas believes that claim about swimming between the stars. She she says then, when I was with Dr. Talus and you were gone, he and Jalenta used to tell me what a simple-minded person I was for believing people we met on the road and the things that Baldander said and things they said themselves too. 
Just the same, I think that even the people who are called liars tell the truth much more often than they lie. It's so much easier. If that story about saving you wasn't true, why tell it? It could only frighten you when you thought back on it. And if she doesn't swim between the stars, what a useless thing to say. She can see Severian is thinking about something while she talks, and Severian is thinking about the butterfly thing that he <laughs> saw in the Pavanine-colored book that the Autark showed him. And rather than going into detail about the meeting with the Autark, he says, uh, not so long ago, I saw a picture in a book of a being who lives in the Gulf. This is what Severian calls the space between the stars. And he says, she was winged, not like bird wings, but enormous continuous planes of thin pigmented material, wings that could beat against the starlight. And Dorcas asks, you mean this is in your brown book? And he says, no, no, another book. I don't have it here. <laughs> so that reminds Dorcas that they were going to look up the conciliator in the brown book. And so Severian gets it out. It's soaked from the Undyne's Duncan. We'll read the passage in a second. But yeah, all that, those are weird ways for this conversation to turn, mm -hmm. it seems to me. Because <laughs> you go from swimming in the stars. You really believe that? And then she's like, but I think it's actually good to believe people. And, you know, and then he's like, well, yeah, I guess... In the sky, it, it seems like you'd have to have wings somehow to yeah. fly between the and stars. I read it, and I read it in a book. Oh, your yeah. your brown book? No, no, another one. I don't. I don't have it here. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's also and all of this when he starts off saying Dorcas seemed so beautiful at that moment, right? And yeah. it's but it's you just saw a giant monster lady come out of the water, and your friend is deathly ill, and he's like, "You're beautiful." And you sit there and think <laughs> like that. Just yeah, just all so sideways to each other but um yeah so they he describes the book he says it was damp from my wedding so i opened it and laid it where the sun would strike its leaves and the breezes that had sprung up as earth's face looked on his again would play over them after that the pages turned gently as we talked so that pictures of men and women and monsters took my eye between our words and thus engraved themselves on my mind so that they are there yet you know craig this combined with the other soakings that this book gets, suggests that the pages are not made from wood pulp, right? And the ink is mm. not just black yep. ink either. It's a kind of metallic ink. He says, occasionally phrases or short passages glowed and faded as the light caught and then released the sheen of the metallic ink. He mentions some of the phrases that did this, which I guess are in his memory. Uh, soulless warrior, lucid yellow, binoyadei, uh, by uh, Noya Day means someone was executed in a group by a process of mass drowning. And How pleasant. This was a method made famous in the French Reign of Terror by uh, Jean-Baptiste Carrière. He, he helped set up and administer the revolutionary tribunals to try actual and counter-revolutionaries. In one area where he was in charge of putting down a counter-revolutionary activity, he uh, felt like he didn't have the resources to care for his detainees, so he started executing them and experimented in ever more efficient methods. And in <laughs> at least one instance, he put 2,000 prisoners on a boat and sank it. And when the news got to Paris, Robespierre had him recalled, but you know the scandal helped bring down the Jacobin regime. And when it did, he was tried for mass murder and executed by guillotine. Thanks. Sounds like somebody Severian would have had some good professional conversations with. Yeah, it's probably in one of his yeah. textbooks, actually. So, so some other phrases that he remembers seeing, 
these times are the ancient times when the world is ancient. Uh, in his chapter guide on the Book of the New Sun, uh, Michael Andre Giussi identifies this quote as from Francis Bacon's Advancement of Learning, Book One, sixteen oh five. Tightly fair paraphrasing, it says, "These times are the ancient times when the world is ancient, and not the other way around. Those that we call ancient, counting backwards from ourselves." So mm. anyway, this yeah. is ancient because we have so much many years behind us, not the, not the ancient, not the times long ago, just because there's a long time between us and them. Wolf must have been very proud of that when, because now you would just like look up quotes about (laughs) history or something and you can find it. (laughs) And this is a quite ironic quote given Severian's time, right? These really are the ancient times in that Mm -hmm. case. If the world was ancient in 1605, centuries before the moon landing, which is when Severian counts mankind's origination, then how <laughs> ancient is you know, Severian's time in the impossibly distant future? Yep. Uh, there's another quote. Uh, hell has no limits, nor is circumscribed, for where we are is hell, and where hell is, there we must be. Uh, this uh, thank you chapter guide is from uh, Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus, uh, 1592. And this is interesting because it is the exact opposite of what Nod says in the play. This is paradise. We are in paradise, or at least under it. Hmm. Or at least under it. Uh, maybe this is the exact statement that Nod makes in the play, really. Yeah, it's pretty cool, too, because it's also very much kind of about hell being a symbolic state, right? And it's not obviously not a physical thing or not a metaphysical thing even, but more psychological. Like that's But if they're under the thing is if they're if they're under paradise, then maybe they are in hell, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. Yep. Yep. Could well be. Could well be. But uh Severian is not going to check out what the Brown book has to say about the conciliator. Instead, he'd rather have Dorcas explain what she knows about what happened to Jolenta. She says, I don't know. I was sleeping and dreaming of, of the kind of thing I always do. Remember that she's explained this dream setting in the personifications. Uh, chapter uh, 22. Mm-hmm. Dark, morbid dreams set in her little deteriorating village south of the Citadel. Yeah, which are about her old life, but she's just kind of like a ghost in her old life. So she says, and I went into a toy shop. There were shelves along the wall with dolls on them and a well in the center of the floor with dolls sitting on the coping. So there's an actual well in the middle of this uh, toy store with dolls that are sitting on top of the circular masonry. That's what the coping is. The the well, of course, suggests where Severian has been the last 40 years. Yep. Yep. Just like the other dolls, unable to do anything, just sitting there. Yeah. So she says, I remember thinking that my baby was too young for dolls, but they were so pretty. And I hadn't had one since I was a little girl. So I would buy one and keep it for the baby. And meanwhile, I could take it out sometimes and look at it and perhaps make it stand before the mirror in my room. So uh, hold on here. We know that Dorcas is the mother of Owen. Is it possible that Owen had a sister? Severian is a twin, there it's hinted at. A tendency towards twins is genetic. Wolf plays on that in the Book of the Short Sun. Could Owen have a twin sister as well? Possibly. She does say keep it for the baby. Um, but I, I suppose it's possible. I mean, if you doing all the, the good sort of gender coding thing here, like would she want a doll for Owen? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Um, but 
yeah, it's, I feel like if this was supposed to be a hint for that, I would want some other weirdness in the phrasing. Cause just when she says, keep it for the baby, I don't, yeah, the baby, I don't, I don't know. But the idea here of course is that she's, you know, the taking it out and playing with it every now and then and sort of standing it before a mirror. Well, that's what she's doing. She's, you know, seeing herself just right. kind of like yeah. a doll and, um, yeah, seeing it's making it stand before the mirror in my room, I think is sort of a, a cool way for the dream logic to turn it back around to the doll right. is me because I put it before the mirror. Uh, you know, we've mentioned the woman Kaz. I can't make this work, but I'll just mention, you know, we mentioned the woman Kazdo who will show up in Sword of Liquor. Mm -hmm. She is a name that many have argued, suggests she's related to Dorcas. And in fact, you know, little Severian is going to ask Severian, are you my uncle? Um, yeah, I, she's yeah. too young to be, you know, Dorcas's sister. So I don't know. Yeah, anyway. but it is certainly possible. I mean, and also too, the other trick is that this is a dream and not necessarily a memory, right? So mm -hmm. yeah, so you, maybe she had. Are they kind of memories? She always says that when she wakes up, she she can remember. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine what her former life was, and, and then, then it, it goes, goes away. away. Yeah, so I, I I imagine it's a mix of that. It's just it, then it just gets hard to know like what details can we hold on to as uh -huh. real, and you know, not, not that it discounts, it just makes it harder. So, um, yeah, but yeah, so she continues. She says, "I pointed to the most beautiful one, one of the dolls, which was one of those on the coping, and when the shopman picked it up for me, I saw it was Jalenta." And it slipped from his hands. I saw it falling down very far toward the black water. Then I woke up. Naturally, I looked to see if she was all right. So this dream has Jalinta falling into the well from the light. And I guess that's symbolism that Jalinta was dying. And of course, mm -hmm. she found her bleeding to death. Yeah. And Jalinta works as a doll, too, of course, because of everything we know about right. her. How she's fake. She's meant to be toyed with and played with. She's artificial. All that yeah, kind of right. Okay, uh, editor's note here. While I'm preparing this segment for publication, it occurs to me that this doll, as described, sounds a lot like Hathor's Paracoita, where he would take it out of its lemon wood case and play with it. Of course, uh, Jalenta has green eyes, and the Paracoita had violet eyes, so I can't really quite make it work, but I do recognize the association. Okay, back to it. And we get a reference here that her hair is not just blonde, but a pale golden blonde. Yeah. It's all, it's weird though. It's like, well, so why would, you know, and, and I guess it's just dream magic, right? Like, why would she dream about Jalenta? How would she have known right. that's happening? Yeah. So, but dreams are, dreams are powerful in Wolf's world. And uh, Severian says to Dorcas, there's no reason for you to look so pale. Um, <laughs> except that she is very pale, uh, Severian. <laughs> but I think the implication is that Dorcas is associating what happened to Jalinta, that it is connected to the Undyne that tried to grab Severian. But Severian says, Jalinta was bitten by an animal, and judging from the bite, it was a small one, and no more to be feared than any other little creature with sharp teeth and a bad disposition. Um, is there a connection between Jalinta and a, a, like a, a real direct connection other than that, you know, the Undine is made from the same sort of technology that Bald Anders uses. Jalinta is made from that technology as well. But is there some, is it possible that there's something that more directly connected? I've, I've been, obviously I've been trying to connect 
the Undine to Thecla and to the 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 maid at the elevation ceremony and to Sperian's mother. Is there a real connection between Jalinta and Severian's mother? I can't think of how it could be, but yeah, I don't really understand that connection either that Dorcas is suggesting. Yeah, I don't really know why, unless I, I mean, it does seem like a very roundabout way to suggest that the sort of artificiality of Baldander's size and Jalinta's beauty were both somehow connected, but then why this weird mystical cause yeah. of her to suffer mm-hmm. because the undine was around too yeah that that just it just starts to get really stretchy and i don't really know what right. to yeah. do with it yeah so dorcas brings up now that she's heard of blood bats out here in the north it was a very scary story that someone told her as a child but once when a bat got into the house her father confirmed that blood bats are real and he said they live in the north, in the steaming forests at the center of the world. We get reference to the steaming jungles, but mostly from people who don't live there. Mm-hmm. And I guess there are no steaming jungles in the equator anymore, even though we don't actually get that far north, if I recall correctly. So Varian refers to them, but I, I think only in reference to his thinking as a child in the Citadel. And Dorcas describes what she was told. It very much sounds like Jalinta's situation. She says... They bite sleeping people and grazing animals at night, and their saliva has a property that prevents the blood from clotting. It's also just really weird that we have the coincidence of an animal that conveniently bites you in a way that's a lot like depressed people like her might try to commit suicide. Mm, No. Right? I mean, that's when it gets... Yeah, I mean, it, it could be the bat, but it's also such a forced coincidence yeah. there that it, it almost has to be more like something like yeah even if it was a bat it was still the meaning of her depression that led it to bite her right somehow some mystical thematic way that the universe is organized and that's just strange <laughs> just strange and i don't know if that's what we're supposed to be thinking but it would be the way that dorcas is thinking if she thinks there's some kind of weird connection yeah. to jalenta and Jaterna, but yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. This part, I don't like, it's got all these resonances of things and finding similarities between things, but I don't, I really don't know what this part is really trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, they probably do reflect something real, but it's kind of hard to nail down what it is to one, one single thing without knowing what it is. If we knew what it was then we would say, ah, yes, well, you see. I mean, it's, it's kind of cool. Like, cause the whole second part of this is Wolf showing off ways that there are connections between different parts of the story and different characters and, and fun, fun games to play with coincidence and sort of meaningful connections. But he also doesn't push too far on it. So I don't know, but Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he doesn't really tell us what they're what he's doing at. Yeah. And so here we get some backstory on Nessus to buttress what Jonas has already told us. She says, My father said that the city had been creeping northward along the river for all of history, having begun as an Atokthan village where Guile joins the sea, and how terrible it would be when it entered the region where the blood bats fly and they could roost in the derelict buildings. So we get information that Nessus, by her father's reckoning, has been moving northward on the Guile, quote, for all of history. And that it started as a, quote, Atokthan 
village at the mouth of the river on the coast. So the term Atakthan essentially means native people, the original mm -hmm. inhabitants. And I've argued that the term Nessus is derived from Buenos Aires. So if we build on that and say that the city of Buenos Aires was the original city and Severian's culture are more recent arrivals, you know, colonists, then from their perspective, it was an Atakthan village. And yeah, I know that seems like a long time given how quickly, you know, Nessus seems to be moving north. But, you know, bear with me. Buenos Aires might have been abandoned and restarted many times, each time moving a little more north. And the current Nessus, inhabited by these recent arrivals from a space foreign culture, could, you know, just be the last. And yes, Guile, the, Ur the Uruguay River, empties into the west of the continent, unlike the Uruguay River. Uh, but Imagine that the Atlantic seafloor has risen and parts of the western side of the continent have sunk into the Pacific. Of course, you know, Wolf could have only meant for the Commonwealth geography to suggest or allude to South America. Anyway, Dorcas points out that the blood bats must be a threat to people living at House Absolute. So Severian is quite wrong to assert that they wouldn't be dangerous animals that live close by. <laughs> That's a long callback. So you were wrong about that. point. <laughs> Although <laughs> one person is almost half dead. So fair. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, there's something's dangerous out there. <laughs> Severian is less interested in being proved wrong right now. He says, the autark has my sympathy. <laughs> did, did Severian just make a joke? He did, I think. <laughs> He's more interested in Dorcas's memories of where she grew up. He asks if she remembers her father and her father's house. And, you know, it's kind of interesting, though. Her father knows a lot about the North, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Severian's great-grandfather. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So he asks if she remembers her father and her father's house. This is kind of a terrible thought for her. She says that when she wakes up after her dreams, she always remembers. But you know how dreams are. And then she changes the subject. We have to get going. Jolenta will be weak. She must have food and clean water to drink. We can't stay here. Yeah, and so this is like the first hint of what she'll eventually tell him in Thrax about how, yeah, she feels mm -hmm. empty and, yeah, walking around as if she's in a dream. Yeah, yeah. whatever she remembers when she first wakes up, it's as bad or worse yeah. as the yeah. dream. So this right? is really kind of one of the yeah. first more concrete hints we get that Dorcas is feeling very sort of disconnected like she'll she's talked before about not really remembering things but this whole section where she is very uncomfortable even talking about it yeah. or trying to remember yeah. all she yeah. all she knows is that she doesn't feel very happy when she yeah when she remembers you know yep. well severian is actually really hungry so they cross the river uh, sisyphus avoiding the sandbar and the area south of the sandbar where the uh, undine was and jalinta has to be supported by them on either side. She's pale, and although she's conscious, she rarely speaks, and then only one or two words. This is when Severian notices, gosh, her lips are so thin, and the lower one is kind of deflated and hangs away from her teeth, and her gums are livid uh, for the first time. Actually, she kind of reminds me of the undine coming out of the water, right? Mm -hmm. Which is almost like saying out of your proper element, or... Having right, been yeah. changed so much that you don't really look natural anymore. Yeah. But yeah, definitely, I think in very, very much um, a call out to the same thing of right. either being monstrous or being moved out of 
where you're supposed to be. Yeah, yeah and uh, let's see, uh, livid gums. Uh, in this case, that means ashen or pallid. It's like she's melting. Mm -hmm. uh, just yesterday, she it was opulent, meaning uh, lavish, luxuriant. And before she made Dorcas look like a little kid in comparison, and now she seemed like a flower too long blown, the very end of summer to Dorcas's spring. Mm. Yeah. So they aren't walking on a, a path or road anymore. It's a track with sugarcane on either side, taller than Severian. Yeah. Yeah. He says, I found myself thinking over and over of how I had desired her in the short time I had known her. Memory, so perfect and vivid as to be more compelling than any opiate, showed me the woman as I had believed I had seen her first. When Dorcas and I had come around a grove of trees by night to find Dr. Tallis's stage gleaming with lights in a pasture. How strange it had seemed to see her by daylight, as perfect as she had appeared in the flattering glow of the flambeau the night before, when we set off northward on the most glorious morning I can remember. And now we must talk again about love and desire. Yep. Love and desire are said to be no more than cousins, and I had found it so until I walked with Jalenta's flaccid arm around my neck. But it's not really true. Rather, the love of women was the dark side of a feminine ideal I had nourished for myself on dreams of Valeria and Thecla and Asia, of Dorcas and Jalenta and Vodalus's lemon, of the heart-shaped face and cooing voice, the woman I now knew to be Thecla's half-sister, Thea. I'll just point out that Severian is now listing Valeria as one of the objects of his desire. I yep. yep. Maybe for the first time. Yep. And so here this sort of thing about the dark side of the feminine ideal. Yeah, it's, it's, he is kind of, I mean, getting back to what you mentioned before about how Wolf's female characters are often more allegorical. That's kind of what he's talking about here. <laughs> there's, I, I have both the beautiful ones that I have, and then there's a dark side to that. But what he's also saying is for the first time, he actually sees Jolenta as a person. And that's what kind of makes him love her. I think, I think that's what's. Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. It's a, uh... When you desire, you're you're desiring a, a feminine ideal, but it's like a, it's like it's like like prey. It's like a consumption of the mm -hmm. of the feminine yeah. ideal rather than something you know more more beautiful or good or whatever. Yeah, and now he's actually just feeling more full bodied care for Jolenta. He's like, I I just want to help her. Yeah, right. Yeah. He continues so that as we trudge between the walls of Cain. When desire had fled and I could only look at Jalenta with pity, I found that though I had believed I cared only for her importunate rose-flushed flesh and the awkward grace of her movements, I loved her. Yeah. Importunate means, well, in this case, it means distracting, right? Her importunate rose-flushed flesh and the awkward grace of her movements. Yeah. That's odd, too. That's a, I mean, it's certainly poetic license or whatever, but that's, not a complete sentence, but that nonetheless, it's in there. I mean, it's, it totally, it works. It's how people talk the so that as we trudge, but now that she's not so distracting on the, maybe perhaps the dark side of, yeah. of, of his ideal, he can maybe look on her with, with, a, yeah. you know, a better side of a, of a feminine, of being, I don't know, take your pick, but it's better than what it was before where she was just, you know, something that made him hungry. Yeah. And so he's going beyond just her looks, right? And sort of 
actually wanting to care for her, realizing that she feels something and he wants to help her. And that is mm -hmm. something of an unusual feeling for Severian, I think, <laughs> at least on a very deep level. I mean, he's talked about desiring Dorcas over and over and missing her and whatnot. But to find someone who's suffering yeah, and then yeah. want to care for them, that's not as much what we've seen from Severian. He's been kind of heartless before. And just to get another angle to this, that, you know, if there's another sort of female archetype that he is thinking of, there is stuff at the beginning of this that talks about mothers, right? And we had talked last time about mother figures too. And in this kind of weird moment here, Severian is like a mother for Jolenta in the sense of having to care for her, like that she needs him to literally survive at this moment. Um, and that's also come in the midst of this giant mother figure, right? Who's had its breast sticking up out of the water. And, and I don't know, there is something here. And I don't know if I could actually establish this with any confidence, but that just kind of feels like Severian has bumped into something with Jolenta that suddenly somehow turns on this caring side of him just a little bit more. And Jolenta's suffering is part of that. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if there is something about what the Megatherians represent, or at least to Severian, that there is in some odd way some good to what's going on here. Like, I don't, I don't, I, this is just totally some weird kind of intuitive thing, but to have it start off with Jeterna and this sort of weird seduction where the mother figure wants to do a bad thing and seduce you or something like that. And then he turns that around somehow. And by the end of the chapter, we have this situation where Severian's like, look, she looks like crap, but I realized I cared for her and I wanted to take care of her and Dorcas is all talked about you know mothering a little bit and and something about dolls and small things and and the small doll artificial things needing help and I don't know there's a lot of sort of imagery floating around this chapter of mothering and and caretaking and yeah so I that's sort of inarticulate yeah. <laughs> in terms of anything specific but, but it, <laughs> well it, it is but so much of this is our inarticulate wolf yeah. is is just hedging around them and I, I feel like we really you know when we were doing the the Jolenta chapter mm -hmm. I felt like it would have been really useful if wolf had been more explicit about what exactly he was trying to say is actually going on with Jolenta and yeah. I feel like we would get more out of it now if we knew what that was, what he's saying now, if we knew what he meant then. Yeah. Right. And I can certainly see the overall point of like, you know, she was all surface before, but then that's, that's fleeting, that's passing. And so she suffers for that. I mean, that kind of sort of high level allegory for her certainly works. I'm just thinking more about like, this is a chapter where Severian goes from almost almost being seduced and saying I would have gone off with this giant thing mm -hmm. that told me magical stories to literally taking care of someone who he kind of hate loved <laughs> just yeah. a little bit ago. I mean, that's and discovering, yeah. And discovering that discovering something else, something yeah. different in him, in his relationship to this woman yep. that he didn't, whereas before he felt desire and contempt uh, kind of wrapped up in the same, the same emotion somehow. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and now it, it, it's something different. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if there is something about Jeterna that's supposed to have 
had a place in that, but just since the chapter is starting off with, with her doing that and then ending this way, just makes me wonder. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I totally get it. I, I don't know. It's the way it ends here though. This yep. is the ending. <laughs> this yep. is all we got. <laughs> um, I don't know. Someone must have an idea about what's going on here. Uh, so people look, reach out to us with your ideas, your comments, your questions, your complaints, your corrections, uh, you know, your thoughts and, you know, bring them to us, to the Facebook group, to the subreddit, to the Twitter, to the email or the Patreon site. And you can find out how to do all that in the show notes. You can leave a Apple podcast review and definitely tell your wolf reading friends. And until you hear from us next, uh, may the more favor you. Or don't do any of those things because all we want is your love. The Only love, your love. love. Bring us, Only yeah, bring your, us your love. love on the Facebook group. <laughs> her eyes aren't like the whippoorwill. And her eyes aren't like the fall. Her eyes are like the diamond bass stretching in the dawn. I have seen her face in the water and the chilling look in her eyes. And if you see her, then you must flee her. Never follow where disillusion lies. Or will you go to the girl with the golden hair down there where her work is done? Will you embrace the night and turn your back on the sun? She'll say it's better there in the water where it's cool and calm and serene. She will call you to come to the water to a world made of emerald green. I have heard that call before. I can hear it when I'm weary. I can hear it when I'm ill. I can hear it when the joy of living seems to have lost its thrill for my swamp girl lives inside of me and she leaves me pale and warm calling come to the deep where your sleep is without a dream But I was talking to Mark. Mark was complaining about, he's like, something about like, oh, you just have to deal with so many people who are wrong all the time. Um, <laughs> and I remember Jai was like, what, you mean James? <laughs> and he was, he was like, well, not just him, but yeah. But, but not he was only like, him. Yeah. I was he's, like, I knew that's what you were well, saying. I'm glad but, he's not singling me out. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, all right. How do we pronounce this one? Odalisk? The Odalisk? Odalisk, I think, but I think let's it's just Odalisk. Let That's it. what let's I see. How to pronounce Odalisk? Odalisk. The yeah, the thing that I saw is just Odalisk. Pronounce Odalisk. It really bugs me that I can't find that poem. I know that that must be a third-party poem that he's. I, came I'm from. not so sure. It may I. You're, you're thinking maybe will, he did write it I think himself. It could be. Yeah, I don't know. But I mean, I would, if, if that's true, I would like to have seen his other 
poems on and each of the other planets. Part of the reason I think that is just because it's so useful for that one point that he makes right there. Like, unless he had it ready to go, like, it just seems, it, it seems like, I don't know, such well, a Well, unless the whole thing, thought, to... you know, he was, it, Wolf strikes me as someone who actually, you know, collected little citations that he liked. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. It could have been. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, but if it if he had written it, then why isn't it in um, for his book of poetry for Rosemary? I don't know. Maybe because he didn't want to write <laughs> a poem about angry killing. <laughs> about <for> anger. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and my brain is free associating. But we, tomorrow we have an interview too, don't we? Yes, we do at five o'clock. Cool. That'll be exciting. Yeah. Did they oh, send us no, a wait, link or anything? Said, Wait, he said four Eastern. Four so Eastern. That's, yes, that's five o'clock our time. Nope, other way. It's oh, three. oh, it's three. Oh, I better clear out some space. Does that, <laughs> that work? Could are have you, been are you bad. okay? Is that yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm usually a little bit better at doing uh, at doing time zone math, but then I usually do it the other way. So I have to pick up Ollie, so I'll I'll be like like five minutes late. Okay. Just I'll let I'll, I was going to send him an email about that. Um, you know what's bad when I read it the first time? Well, I'll say, I'll say, I'll wait. <laughs> okay. All right. Actually, that sort of reminds me that um, we had an interesting discussion during a, we we're talking to some of the uh, writing center people today for some stuff. And they were talking about how, and I didn't know this, but apparently in a lot of um, composition programs, the sort of definition of what counts as common knowledge is changing. And I don't know, like in high school, when you had to write research papers and even in college, oh. probably the, the common thing was like, you have to cite anything that's not common knowledge. <laughs> well, apparently it's changing now to where kids are learning oftentimes in high school, that if it's just a basic fact that you could easily look up on Wikipedia or something like that, you don't have to have a citation for it. It's only a theory or a, a something more controversial or something huh. like that, because so many people are so used to just quickly looking stuff up now Yeah, that if I they want that confirmation, yeah. I mean, they do you really need like, to explain every little thing? Yeah, I mean, yeah. And it does kind of make sense. It also means that something, there's something exists that you can just easily Google. Mm -hmm, yeah. mm -hmm. It also means that it's much more open than to what counts as easy to look up. But anyway, I just thought that was interesting because that's just talking about how Google pronounces things. I'm like, that's, that's <laughs> whether or not. Yeah. Oh, and well, no, here's another one. Odalisk. Oh, what do you say? Oh, really? Odalisk. I don't like that. I don't like it either. I mean, it probably, it's so, actually probably right. And that's Google's too. See, Google has two different... I mean, this is, different... uh, it, this is what? It's it's Turkish or something. It's probably Odalisk. Yeah. Uh, Odalisk. I like Odalisk. That's... that's. But I, I'm going to say, even though it's wrong, it may be like Alzebo, but... Um, I can just really piss people off. Me. The Odalisk of I, I mean, Abaya. It's got too many... Too many Abaiyas on it. Then <laughs> I'm not going to go. Over. I'm going to do this whole book called saying the Odalisque of Abaya. Maybe I'll start it off with that. <laughs> no, I'll do that. The Odalisque, the Odalisque of Abaya of Abaya. <laughs> she wrote. Oh, sorry. Hold on. Let me finish. <clears throat> Starting to decide if that was going to happen or not. Okay. Um. <clears throat> okay. 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 Now uh, she calls this little river. Sophistus, I'll try, try again. Give me the power, he says, 
to breathe water, I said, and let me, oh, no, I'm just saying the same thing. Never mind. Skip that. All right. Well, you ready to jump in? Yeah. Yeah. Can we do it? All right. 28. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Hold, hang on one second. I got to pause okay. real quick. Actually, I'm going to hit stop for just a second because okay. we, uh, we're at an hour and that way we we'll start a new room. Okay. One second. All right. We you are ready? Going. Are we going? Gambler's Ruin. That's Gambler's the Ruin. Okay. Cool. Gambler's Ruin. Like a gambler will be doing good, mm -hmm. but then he'll just lose, 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 lose. Yeah. And then he's out. Yeah. And the breezes that had sprung up as Earth's face looked on his again. Is that right? It's Earth's face and the breezes that had sprung up looked on. Hang on. Let's. I may have to go get the book. I got it right here. It is. Here, I'll just read it from. It was damp. It was okay. damp from my wedding. So I opened it and laid it where the sun would strike its leaves. And the breezes that had sprung up as Earth's face looked on his again would play over them. As Earth's face. Oh, oh, oh. And as the sun is his. Okay. So all right, I'll say it one last time. Did I say that right? 